0: Off the Ball. I don't
1: think Springboks are in crisis because you would hate for a team that is so phenomenally good a year out from the World Cup to be world number one and then to go out in the
2: quarter Yes, yeah, Stephen, we, we know. Subscribe
0: it. to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. Off the Ball. This
2: is News Talk. Right, you're very welcome back. It is the final hour of uh, Ronald Mullin's time with Off the Ball as to just the final hour of tonight's show. How are you feeling?
1: I don't know. It's... Uh, it's hard to describe, but um, you were told to much earlier. Oh well, I wasn't expecting um, the the love in at the top of the show. That was as much as I was producing tonight's show. That was uh, that
2: blindsided me a little bit. There so that you was very, it. that was very kind. We still have it. <laughs> so just to open the kimono a little bit, uh, when you're a guest on the show and not actually talking to anybody else you don't need earphones but we managed to convince you to put earphones on which you did very reluctantly (laughs) and had to we had to do some gymnastics like what are we going to say you not need them
1: catherine was like oh well the audio quality is just better when you can hear yourself it's true it is true like
2: "Jeez, i've taught her well i have taught her well (laughs) (laughs) very good so one of the things i asked you to do this week was to put together some of your highlights from your time with us um was it like picking one of your favorite children Oh, well, we only touched on a couple
1: of them in the first hour there and, like, it is difficult. Uh, six years um, reduced into one, but just to start in the boxing vein, I suppose, because that would have been the, um, the strand I was able to pull on when I first got in here and I think one of the pieces we did was Carl Phantom was fighting for the world title against Leo Santa Cruz in America and this was, like, a huge fight at the time and he went on to win and it was probably the best win by an Irish fighter abroad full stop I'd say but to that point it was probably the biggest fight involving an Irish fighter since Nasim Hamid fought Wayne McCullough and uh, we got Wayne on just to talk about what a crazy time that was like you would remember being in the throes of the Nasim Hamid era and Wayne McCullough somehow find himself in that and circumstance so we were chatting to him about that and uh, that was one of the first boxing pieces I did but there, as you that's, know there were f- Nass beat him pretty badly didn't he? Well Wayne would contend in that chat that um the judges did him over pretty hardly. But, like, same Hamed is one of my favorite fighters. Like, I remember I would have been big into wrestling as a child. And boxing and wrestling just kind of blurred into one when I was flicking through the channels. And I was like, oh, is this just The Rock or Stone Cold or whatever? Because Hamed was so larger than life. And uh, I quickly realized this is actually real. And he's just pretty good. Um, so when an Irish guy found himself in the middle of that, that was, that was pretty nice. And I was uh, impressionable. And I remember... My dad ordered the pay per view, and his friends were around, and right, my neighbour was around, my cousin. So I was too young to be watching it, but I heard about it the next day, and they would have said Wayne McCullough was hard done by. It's only when I watched it back as an like, actual well, you know, adult, I was like, "Well, that's kind of pretty clear." Now nah, that yeah. the has settled, twenty years later. Yeah, but um, there's uh, there were loads of boxing things like I, I loved doing that, and obviously loved doing the, the podcast for a while pre-COVID and you know to work with phil egan is just an exceptional broadcaster and andy lee was like kind of a little bit pinch myself moment when he was co-presenting as well and we were tic-tacking on ideas so um that was great and some great stuff came out of that and great experience for me too so hopefully people enjoyed it too and he's gone on to the zone and
2: uh, and other great things yeah training world champions galore not interested? a bad cv at this point and i'm sure he sticks working with you and i on joking aside i know that um getting in and being able to work on that on a regular basis was something that really meant something to him so, uh, so you picked a, a boxing piece tonight to start with and this is legitimately one of the best pieces that we've ever done Yeah so
1: this, uh, as Joel said earlier it was quite fresh in the door and um, it was just happened to be the anniversary of a very famous fight where Boo Mancini, who's um, gone on to be a Hall of Famer but his profile almost outstrips his talent in some ways where he was a rocky balboa figure i would say you know just the way he worked his way up from from nothing essentially and was able to cut it at the highest level but he was a clean cut guy very good looking guy and for that reason was pedestaled very highly in in boxing circles so this was a hugely high profile fight as well when he when he fought Duku Kim and tragically because of the wear and tear suffered by both in that fight but particularly his opponent, of Kim later passed away as a result of that bout and we'll hear some of it now but my memory of it was like the mechanics of radio are interesting, I think this was on a Wednesday or something and we would have Wednesday night rugby at 8 o'clock and this was the half seven piece and by all accounts that would normally be about 19 minutes but by about 19 minutes he was so good we hadn't even got to the crux of the conversation. So it was live? Oh yeah. all right. We were actually supposed to pre-record it earlier in the day and uh, uh, events arose but um, by about five to eight I was texting Keith Wood saying Keith we might be a little bit late here so it was probably by half eight we were still talking to, to Ray and like Joe was such a pro was able to navigate it very deftly because as you said live radio there's, there's a bit of jeopardy there when you're t- dealing with sensitive subject matter and the interviewee was so giving as you'll hear here so this is a uh, Ray Bim Bim Mancini in 2017
3: Hey how you doing? Good How are you? Good I was telling the listeners we tried to record this earlier on but we're going now
4: yeah, hey, life's much better anyway. You <laughs> never know what's going to happen. You never know what I'm going to say.
3: No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, one of the brief things you mentioned to me, actually, uh, when, we, when we chatted earlier, was I know your father, who um, was a fighter as well, Lenny Manc- Mancini, right. was uh, Italian, obviously. Didn't realize your mother was Irish.
4: My mother's Irish. Now, again, uh, uh, my, 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 uh, my mother's main name is Atreid, which is an English name. But my grandfather used to say we're Irish we're English by Irish extraction or I never understood what the heck that meant but I get it you know what I mean <laughs> but my but my grandmother was a Flynn Dorothy Flynn right so that's Irish as you can get right there right
3: sure is where and I'm not
4: sure what part I'm not sure what part of Ireland they're from to be honest with you and I wish I did know uh, because uh, you know that's my next trip that's my next goal I've been to every other country in the UK except Ireland and next year, when I come back over to the UK, I've been promised we're going to go to Ireland.
3: Okay, so, don't don't be walking around here saying Ireland's in the UK, or you'll get in trouble. That's the only tip oh, I'll give you.
4: Oh, I, I'm glad you told me. Don't <laughs> know. No, well, the UK—I thought that was the four countries. Am I wrong?
3: It's England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland.
4: Oh, no, okay. So Ireland, I see. I know. Right, right. The we're Northern the south, Ireland, right? Yeah. So, okay, so yeah, so there's, you know, that's, that's a helpful in tip Indonesia. for you. Yeah. No, no, no. Okay, I'm glad you told me because <laughs> God forbid. Look. The Irish, they're tough as they come anyway, you know, and I don't want to know, God forbid, I get over and I start saying I'm in the UK, that i got to get in a beef but I'm going to be ba- fighting on the streets of Dublin.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's great to have you on, and I mean, there's a whole uh, load to talk to you about. For instance, I don't know where you're living now, Ray, I couldn't quite uh, find that out, but um, you're from Youngstown, Ohio, and you and say... I'm
4: back in Youngstown, that's where I'm at now. Oh, are I'm you?
3: Okay. You say of Youngstown that... Um, my fighting style was indicative of the town. You take some shots and you give more than you take, and you're still standing. It's a town uh, which I, I know you had a really happy childhood, but also there were some violent events there. Like at one point, it was being called Murder Town and Crime Town. Yeah. So that you're back in Youngstown, you obviously love it there, then.
4: Yeah, I love being in Youngstown. You know, it's funny because all those uh, names that were bestowed on it—Crime us, Town, USA, Murder Town, Bomb City, USA—yeah, uh, through the years there has been, you know. We're one of the few countries, in, we're one of the few cities in the country controlled by two major mob families, Cleveland and Pittsburgh. But it's been that way forever. and there's always been a, and it's, I guess when you grew up here, you don't realize that for everyone else, they think, "Oh, what a tough town, but yeah, it's a tough town, you know we're still blue-collar people. we're hard-working people. blue-collar, the steel mills were, were thriving back then. I never looked at it as a crime town. I never looked at it. I was never scared to go anyplace. Um, even now that I'm back, I don't, you know, the town's not the same, obviously. Uh, it's much different. But uh, I never look at it as a place that I can't, I can't go or any neighborhood that I can't go. Mm. I, I feel comfortable going any place. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess it's for others on the outside looking in, it would be considered a tough town. Uh, and that may be a bit dangerous. But for me, no, I'm comfortable here. I'm com- I know everybody and everybody knows me. And, you know I I'm
0: back.
3: Yeah. I love my son. Home is home. Your father yeah. uh, Lenny Mancini was a fighter. He became a number one contender for the world lightweight title at one stage in his career, but World War II happened and various things happened and it didn't it didn't quite work out. He said to you uh, your father Lenny, I didn't win them all, but I never took a step back. And and it seems to me his nickname was Boom Boom as well. That you guys maybe were similar type fighters. Maybe not about um, elegance and, and 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 dancing. More pressure fighters, pro fighters.
4: Well, yeah, my father. You know, right? My father. Uh, I love that line too. It's his favorite line. Ray, Ray. I never won them all, but I never took a step backwards. Hmm. But then he stopped and said, "But sometimes I wish I did." <laughs> <laughs> you know, my father. That was the style. you have to say my father was five foot two.
0: Right
4: <laughs> now. Five foot two with a 40 inch chest. Right. So, you know, so my father was like a little fire plug. Yeah. He was coming at you. And and it, they used to call him, that, you know, it, it was that same era, a little bit after Henry Armstrong. So they used to call him the White Armstrong.
0: Right.
4: And, and same style and whirlwind style, throwing punches. My, and that's why before every fight, before I'd go in there, uh, before my father coming into the dressing room to meet, be with me, I wanted him there. I felt, you know, I felt a bit of comfort having him with me. Mm. So, Ten minutes before they say okay, t- TV was okay, ten minutes out. My father said okay, Raymond, I'm gonna go. Sit, I'm gonna go sit down. So he gave me a hug and a kiss, and I was was always like it was. It almost became like everyone would laugh because it became like a, a, a ritual for us. But I said, all right. I said, Dad, what do you think I got to do today? And my father was. It was just. It was always the same answer because that's just who he was. He said, Ah, oh, just go in there and throw punches. Just throw punches,
0: mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> you know. And that that was his style. So. For for you know for him you know being the size that he was but my father if he walked in a room you thought he was ten foot tall
0: mm.
4: he, he walked big you know and that's the, I learned that from him and and I, I tell you um, he never, here's what I'm proud of my father was five foot two fought number one lightweight contender in the world fought welterweight and after the war he fought middleweights and even some light heavyweights because at that time there was no lightweight limits so a lot of guys would come down from light heavyweight or well, he'd fight them over the weight because he'd just make the money. Mm. You know, and my father was never knocked out or stopped his whole career right. by anybody. Now, you know how significant it is Because everybody got stopped or knocked out at some time. There's only two fighters, other fighters that during in that era that I, that were never stopped or knocked out. Billy Graham and uh, Kid Gavilan mm. that, I, that I know of. There could be others. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's the one thing I'm proud of my father's career. and I'm proud of him. And he was very proud of. Then he fought everybody and anybody. Yeah. never took a backward step, and he was never knocked
3: out. I know you. Um, you always said to him, "I'm going to win you a uh, a world title someday." And and your yeah. career. So you you love boxing as well. You're looking at his scrapbooks. It's it's it's. I mean, it's what you want to do. The 1976 Montreal Games are slightly significant in that they really, probably for for the first time to an American audience, really showcase the lighter weights and right. You know, people saw there was really exciting fights at lower weights. And so you come, come along the late 70s, early 80s. You've got what, you know, Bob Arum looks at you and, and loves your style and CBS get on board. And you're, you're regularly featured in the, the primetime spots thereafter. So a really quick rise and, and, you know, you're a ratings hit is what uh, Bob Arum says about you. And, and like very quickly, you get a world title shot and it comes in 1982. You're still, you're 20, 21 years old.
4: No, actually, my first title try was 1981, October 3rd against Alexis Arguello. Oh yeah, that, you I, lost that one. 20? Uh, yeah, I did. I was 20 years old. That was my first title try. Yeah. You know, and everybody thought I was crazy for fighting Alexis Arguello. And I said, Well, what do you think? He's one of the greatest fighters of all time. There's no dispute. I used to love Alexis. I was a fan, and I watched him when he won the featherweight title, and I see when he won the junior lightweight title. Mm. But I got—I thought I was going to be stronger. I thought I was going to be a little too young for him, and. You know, but here's what I tell people. I beat the number six contender in the world, and I beat the number three contender in the world. Where do you go from there? Mm. When they offered the a title, what are you going to say? No, I'll wait for it to come around next time. Well, there is no next time. Ask my father how many title shots you get. Yeah. So there was no next time. And and I said to everybody, to be the best, you want to fight the best. To be the best, you got to beat the best. So why would I want anybody else? Now, yeah. like going back to that fight with Lexus. It's where experience took over. My lack of experience, you know, is where his, he took over in the last three rounds. And But here's what I tell people. This is why the true championship distance is 15 rounds, not 12, 15. Because if there's 12 rounds, I beat Lexus. Mm. I'm the world champion. Mm. But the last three rounds are known as the dog rounds, the championship rounds. Mm. But in, in boxing, terminology we call them the dog rounds. We see those the last three rounds. We're going to who brings a dog out of each other? You know. And uh, But that's why. Yeah. I mean... I'm a firm believer. Fight should be 15. That's a TV decision. That's not a medical decision. Nothing else. A TV decision. TV gets more. They, they get more commercial times. They could have an opening and a closing. But that's the only reason. If, if TV said, "Look, we're we're not going to show another fight last 15 rounds, or in the way ins the morning of, we'd be back to the way ins the morning of a 15-round fight." Okay. TV could close it all.
3: Okay, I might come back to that point, actually, because that's that's kind of relevant to your career, and that's one of the the things that's said about your career. But the World Championship itself, so May 8th, 1982, and you're in Las Vegas, and you're fighting Arturo Frias, and I mean, like people can watch this round or remind themselves of it if they haven't in a while, because it only goes for 2 minutes 54 seconds, and it's extraordinary story. like he he lands a pretty good blow on you early on you're bleeding from your eyebrow we've got a clip here just to jog your memory of I guess what was an amazing miraculous kind of moment for you and to set the context you threw 33 punches here in 22 seconds we've just got two guys just letting fly in the first round of a world title fight <sighs> Not today.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Was it your plan yeah, to just that... go in all guns blazing at the start?
4: Well, of course. You know, first of all, that was my style. I'm going to come on, jump on you early and, and try to take your heart away. But I knew it against Arturo. I knew that he was fighting a guy similar in style. He had a lot of heart. Uh, he was strong. I felt I was going to be physically stronger. I didn't think he was he was going to be as big a puncher as I was. So I thought I'd be able to, you know, wear him down. But, it, you know... Whatever your feelings are, I I didn't think I'd ever have another shot at the title. Mm. You know, we go in retrospect, everyone can get a shot now, but it wasn't like that back then. Mm. So, um, the fact that I got shot against Alexis, then I got a second shot in such a short amount of time. uh, I had two fights in between. I had to win those both. Um, Yeah, I thought I was going to jump on them. The experience I gained from the Aguayo fight I was going to use. And I was not going to be denied that day. I was I was going to win that yeah. title no matter what. Well, for, and, your,
3: um, for for your family, yeah. so your father, you know, your, your father's history in the sport. We don't really right. have time to get into it now, and it's not so relevant right. to your career. But your your brother had been had been shot, and that had, needless to say, taken right. a massive toll on the family. So your father's there ringside, and you've done it. You know, like, can you even yeah. describe the moment? Is it the greatest moment of your life?
4: Oh, absolutely. There's no dispute. I said, other than each seeing each one of my children born, there's nothing greater in my life that I've ever, you know, achieved or, or felt. Yeah. It was a it was a euphoric feeling. It was it was like euphoria, and and I think you know you you don't ever have those experiences except when you see each one of your children born, and maybe if you're you know blessed to have another experience in your life, but that's it. Mm. It's it's just it's, out of the, it's like an out of body experience, and I finally felt, after all those years, I finally accomplished my dream, you know, and and not only for my father and and myself, but, you know, I I was representing the city of Youngstown, my hometown of the city of Youngstown, Ohio, but I never realized to what extent until after that fight, you know?
3: Well, suddenly you're a superstar. What did your dad say to you as a matter of interest or do you even remember in the madness of the aftermath?
4: Oh no! We were just hugging each other and kissing each other. My mother, my sister, my mom—everyone was crying. We were just, <laughs> we, you know, I'm saying? we did it. We did it. You know, we finally did it. <laughs> yeah. And, and it just—that I remember. We were just whole just hugging each other and kissing and crying. I mean, it was—I I think it was a moment <laughs> because I think my city of Youngstown—they—they—they took the—they they took the, they took the uh, journey with me, mm. so to speak. Because mm. you have to understand, I turned pro only two years after the steel mill shut down. You have to understand. We had our unemployment was up to 28. percent There were over 100,000 men without jobs in the city, and people would come to my fights and, and cash in the welfare checks, their, 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 uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, unemployment checks. Mm. Come to my fights, mm. and so I knew that I, I was representing just more than myself. But again, you don't know to what extent until you get to that magnitude, and I was basically carrying the hopes and dreams of the people, as well as my family. Yeah, and so when I won that the town you know I, I was not only for my family but for the town
3: itself I can imagine we have a clip here from The Good Son The Life of Ray Boom Boom Mancini and you can just to give people a sense of what a superstar you were across America at just 21 world title uh, win the clip here is, it has some of your childhood friends but it also has Sugar Ray Leonard it has Bob Arum talking and you'll hear first of all the actor Mickey Rourke And, and...
5: He was the hottest thing on television Everybody was just in awe of this guy. I got captivated watching Raymond Mancini and hearing his story about his dad and and watching his fights. His fights were
0: action-packed.
5: Ray was always great for ratings. People just ate it up. And he became an icon on the American sports scene. Ray Boom Boom Mancini was not just a fighter. He was an attraction.
3: He was a star. When he fought, people watched. Big time.
1: At that time, you know, the unemployment rate was sky high. and Nothing was going right in Youngstown. People gravitated towards Ray.
4: Ray
0: was Youngstown.
4: When we're 12 years old, we give our dad a tie or we give him a card or something. Raymond gave his dad a promise that I will win the title that you so well deserve.
3: Yeah, amazing stuff. And so, i superstardom, like you're on the front cover of Sports Illustrated. Uh, it's Radio Ray, so yeah, I hope you don't mind me saying you're a very good looking guy. You could talk the talk. <laughs> you were an endorsement dream, uh, really. Sugar Ray Leonard had recently retired. People were saying we need a new superstar and the Rocky franchise had just really kicked into gear and you were kind of seen as the real life Rocky story. Like, so, I know um, Frank Sinatra was a big fan. Did you did you meet Frank?
4: Oh yeah, I got a chance to meet Mr Sinatra. Uh, first time was uh, before one of my fights and I was standing backstage and we took a picture together of me putting a glove on his hand and and after that I got to be friends with him and several times I'd see him and go to his concerts and if I was in Vegas I'd go visit him He's was a wonderful man wonderful yeah. man and I was very honored to be, you know, to be associated with him you know as a matter of fact but I was listening to the, the, the clip
0: yeah. of the uh,
4: film now you have Mickey in there don't forget we have Ed O'Neill there, Ed O'Neill's from Youngstown, from Modern Family, and, and uh, who uh, uh, you know, Ed O'Bundy. Uh,
0: Bundy uh, oh, yes, of course. Children, yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: Eddie, now Ed O'Neill. And then the last voice you heard, but, you know, he said, some when we're little boys would give our fathers a, a necktie, or yeah. that's Father O'Neill, Father Tim O'Neill, who was my teacher.
0: Right. And he was
4: the one, Father O'Neill, father O'Neill would come into my uh, room. He's the one he would come up with my father, and, and before every fight, he'd give me a blessing before every fight. And then him, he'd take him. my father would walk out and, you know, it gave me some sort of comfort, you know, and that was, that's why I felt, I always, father knew that all my fights and I was, he was my, my personal priest, you know, he was there for everything. He was my teacher in high school. And then later on, one of my, became very, very close friends. And so
0: right.
4: he's Amazing. been with me through all, through it all.
3: Yeah. So
4: a lot of Irishmen lot of Irishmen around me.
3: I, I, listen, look at <laughs> you, look <lucky> at you. <laughs>
0: Absolutely.
4: <laughs>
3: um I guess you know where I'm going with this now, which yeah, is I do, the I do. unfortunate thing. Um <laughs> do you do you go through a day of your life or a week of your life without it coming up?
4: There's days, yeah, there's days that it doesn't come up, but uh, not too many weeks that go by that don't come up. Right. You know, and <laughs> specifically because the anniversary was just uh, you know,
3: last this month, yeah.
4: Yeah, just a couple uh 10 days ago, maybe. So, um, yeah, I mean, it happened. comes up. But I tell people, I said, look, I've talked about it long enough, and out respect to the memory of Kim, and out of respect to my family, I said, have you read the book? And a lot of people go, oh, not, oh yeah, yeah. I say, okay. Or have you seen the documentary? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I said, okay, it answers all the questions.
0: Mm.
4: Or if they say, no, I haven't got a chance to. I said, well, then you should, because mm. it answers all the, the reason, One of the reasons I did that documentary is because... I, so I would have to answer questions repeatedly through the rest of my life. Yeah. I pretty much answered, you know, I've given the same answer pretty much uh, through, the, through the years. And, you know, it gets a little tiresome. And, you know, and I understand why people ask. And I understand that, you know, that's human nature. and That's okay. Mm. But, you know, I think if they watch it enough, then they get it. You know, it's okay. I got the answer now. Don't need to ask it no more.
3: Yeah. yeah. the 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 documentary is the good son, the life of Ray Boom Boom Mancini. Do you mind if we touch on parts of it? Because I know you've never been on Irish radio before. Okay. Well, well, well. Say move on at any point if you want. So, I mean, there will be people listening who mightn't be aware. I guess. So, you're world champion, and you're you're. It's it's all at your feet. CBS love you. America loves you. And your second defence is against Dooku Kim, uh, the mandatory challenger, South Korean. It takes place in November 1982. And, and the anniversary, as you said, is this month. That's what kind of uh, tweaked it in our brain. It's in, it's in Las Vegas. Uh, there's a 10,000-seater outdoor arena. It's a huge uh, event. Um, we might jump in at, at one point where uh, you say in the documentary, you could actually hear him. You don't spend that much time together pre-fight, but you could hear Kim in the changing rooms before the fight.
4: Yeah, he was in his rest, rest room. was like next to mine. There, there was obviously a wall, but he was in next room, and I heard him screaming these these, these bone chilling screams and ah ah. And banging the lockers, and the lockers were you know rattling and said, and and you know everyone stopped. My my whole team and and we, we look at each other and I you know and I said I, I, so I broke the ice. And I said, well I guess we're gonna, we're in for a rough one tonight. Mm. And, you know, because, you know, I look, I knew what I was going into. I saw the tape. Dave, my manager, David Wolf, sent me the tape he Said, look at your next opponent, you know. And I seen the tape and I saw a round, round and a half. I didn't have to see two complete rounds. I turned it off and I called David and said, OK, let's make the fight. I said, it's going I'm I'm hmm. to be a war. It's going to be a war. It's going to be a headache. Yeah. But let's, let's you know, make the fight. Yeah and, um, yeah. and I knew what I was going into. Every fighter knows what he's going into. You got to. And plus my style of fighting, I did, I, look, even if it was supposed to be relatively an easy fight on paper, it was never going to be an easy fight for me. I couldn't, my style wouldn't allow me, wouldn't, wouldn't afford me to be, have an easy fight mm. because the physical, I'm going to, am going to be physically on top of you. And look, and you got to take some to give some. So when I'm coming in, I'm going to probably eat some punches, but that's why I made the statement. But hopefully at the end of the day, you're going to eat, you're going to eat more than I do. Mm. And I'm going to be still standing. Mm. But, so, I was always prepared mentally what I was going up against, no matter who it was and uh but this particular fight I knew I was what reading the guy uh I was going I was watching a guy who had the same determination and and, and and that I had and and you know same reasons to wanting to win the world title that I had
3: yeah, and so funny enough, he had actually um he had made a miniature coffin for his training camp, and it basically said one of us is going to go, well not one of us he said it's, man, a it's, it's for mancini yeah.
4: Yeah, yeah. But he admitted, I didn't know that. He had not know anything about the coffin. I found that out later. Right. And and his people said that he had said, they said, what did you make that for? He said, because either I'm going home in this or Mancini's going home in this. Now, but what he actually had written was written, he wrote on um, his uh, lampshade in the dress room, and he wrote, kill or be killed. Now, see, do you understand how eerie this is? Mm-hmm. The bit after all this came out later, that he wrote this? And he said that with the coffin, and how prophetic it was, because that's what he had planned for me. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I didn't know any of this beforehand. Thank God I, uh, thank God I didn't, yeah. because it scared the heck out of me. Yeah, it's, it, it, it would have scared you know. I mean, it would have been wow, man. This, this you know, you know, you go fight for the right reason. That would have been different. That would have definitely be, uh When you know somebody's going there to try to do that type of damage to you. Yeah. Well,
3: it would have affected me. There was no dispute. It would affect me. Gil Clancy Clancy was one of the CBS analysts and and I I don't know if you know this. I'm sure you know everything about the fight there is to know but just for the listeners, he said at one point in the sixth round something's going to happen in this fight. Either one guy's going to get busted up or nail the other guy very badly. It was a ferocious fight because of the styles you both had, and he was so—you know Kim was so determined. This was his big chance. This was the opportunity of his lifetime. As, as you're into uh, the twelfth round, for instance, the thirteenth round, are you thinking to yourself, "This is a bit different. This is a war. This is out of the ordinary."
4: Well, I knew the right from the, right the jump. Well, like I said, I knew going into it. You know, I always prepare for war. I always prepare for war. That's because of my style. I have to. Yeah. But I knew. Right for the jump. He, if you watch the fight, the first punch he threw a straight left and caught me. Yeah. Right for the jump. Yeah. The fight was on. Right for the jump. You know, we we met in Ringi, ring. He threw a straight left hand, caught me. I hit him. You know, and and then boom, we stood toe to toe. Mm. And um, that's uh, yeah, that was what's up. I mean, so I knew what I was going into into the ring with, but it hit me. I mean, literally with the first punch. That's it was on. So there was no rest for the weary. In this fight, well, you know, I don't, we,
3: in the in the in the thirteenth round, uh, you threw, yeah. and this is, I mean, he's too brave for his own good. Kim, in this instance, yeah, you yeah. threw, you threw forty four consecutive punches unanswered, and so it looks for all the world like this is it, it's done. And then right. somehow in that same round, he rebounds at the end, yeah, and starts yeah. throwing punches back at you. And then we're into the fourteenth round, which is ultimately the final round. So, I mean. He just would—he just would not quit. Forty-four consecutive punches thrown. Um, It's—I mean—it's—it's it's a knockout, and you go off and celebrate, I presume. It's—it's it's an amazing fight. You're—you're, you're, I presume, delighted and also utterly drained afterwards.
4: Well, let's go back to the thirteenth sure. round. I threw forty-something unanswered punches, but the reason I didn't hit him all the punches—he was rocking. He was bobbing and weaving. I was hitting him with a lot of them, yeah. but I was missing a lot of them. So it kept bobbing. It was the referee Richard Rine couldn't jump in because he was still because Kim was still uh, aware enough to, to bob and weave, make me miss. Yeah. So after 40, I got a little arm weary, of course. And then I, we come out of a clinch and he starts to come back at me up, throwing straight punches at me. And then he kept coming at me. Right. And like you said, he, you know, he, he rebounded and then, you know, and he started coming on and, you know, and the place is going crazy. The, the fans are going, you know, going crazy, mm. rooting for him. And it, it was just different. I said, wow, man. And then, you know, that's the bell rang finally, thank God. Mm. And then I went back to my corner and um, beginning of the 14th round. Again, I jumped, I just ran out there. He came out and he went to throw a punch. I sidestepped him and I, I just, you know, I had him on the left, a right, and uh, another left and a straight right. And that's when he went down. Mm. So it was like a, you know, four punch combination. Yeah,
3: 19 seconds and, into yeah, that 14th yeah, round. And we
4: were, oh, yeah, we were jubilant and we were jumping up and down, right. going crazy because. That was such a war. It was such a rugged fight. I mean, it was a great, look, it was a great win. It was a great, great victory. But after, and subsequently because of what happened, there's nothing great about it. There's nothing good about it. Yes. But if, that, if, if, thank God, if, if God forbid, he didn't pass, if he didn't go into a coma and pass away, that would be one of those fights that would be shown on ESPN Classics all the time.
3: There's a ch- there's a chill- of, yeah because of what happened um, there's there's a chi- what
4: happened there's nothing good
3: so yeah there's a ch- there's, there's a chilling photo sorry to interrupt you there there's a chilling photo of him being stretched out of the ring you didn't see that you didn't see that at the time you didn't no, know right? no
4: yeah I never saw that until when I saw the replay of uh, uh, on TV that they carried him out in the ring because people said how insensitive that we were jumping down and celebrate I said God forbid if I'd have known that we'd have never been doing that sure I went over to see him. You know, after go to his corner, like every fight after every fight, you go to each other's corner or whatever to congratulate him in his corner. He was in, he was sitting there. I saw him sitting there. You know, I see him sitting there. I, I, yeah, we were, we were both beat up. I was swollen. He was swollen. That's it. I just seen him sitting there. I didn't realize that we were over there when we were celebrating over on my side of the of the, uh, the ring that he slid to the floor and they brought a, a stretcher in. Never knew that. Or else we I would have never. have been, you know kept the celebration going on.
3: When do you yeah. hear there's trouble?
4: Well. <laughs> We went back to my room. I went to my room, and, we, and after, like after every fight, we we're, were gonna have an after party fight. I mean, after fight party, after fight party, <laughs> <laughs> and an after party fight too. After no, <laughs> after uh, after fight party, and um, so I was getting. I come out of the shower. I came out of the shower. I was getting dressed, and Murphy Griffith, my trainer, come to my room. And uh, I said, Ray, we got, man, I got some bad news. I said, what's the matter, Griff? He said, man, the boy, boy's in bad shape. What do you tell him? I said, they took him to the hospital. They took him to the hospital? Said, yeah, he's in bad shape, Ray. I said, what, what's going on? They said, Ray, he ain't going to make it. He doesn't look like he's going to make it. And that was the first time. Mm. And then he said, well, Dave's going to be up soon to tell you about it. And Dave Wolf, my manager. And Dave came up shortly afterwards and told me that what happened, that came had lapsed into a coma. I was taken off in a stretcher. And that the doctor said there's no chance of him recovering, and that's the first time. And and that's man, that, it's like it just took all the wind out of me, mm. you know. And I, I didn't know what to do. And Father O'Neill came up shortly afterwards, and you know he knew, of course. Dave had talked to him beforehand. He wanted Dave wanted him to be there, for this, you know, to to of course to comfort me. But I, you know, I, I don't know how to how to feel. And I don't remember exactly how I felt at the moment, except you know. Immediately, you know, you get a sick feeling. You're feeling, you know,
3: yeah, in your stomach.
4: Uh, in your stomach. But I, I don't know if you, if I fully comprehended the extent of it, the magnitude of it, yeah. until probably next day. And um, you know, when I flew back, I flew back home. The fight was on set. I flew back home. I stayed Sunday. I stayed Sunday night and flew back Monday. Mm. I wanted to see if I can go see him. And when I went to, to go, I asked to go see him. They, they, the doctors said no, that would not be good. We went to the hospital, and the doctors wouldn't let me see him. They said it just wouldn't be good. Mm. Um, so uh, they said he was he wasn't coming out of it, and that it would just be a matter of time. And I think that's the first time I grasped the, the uh, severity of the situation. And then you know we went back to my um, went back to my room, and um, we we had mass. We had mass at the hotel. Father Nuthur had mass. And that's the picture of me. there's usually a picture, the picture went over the wire. That my head down. I was, had my head, in my hands, you know. And um, uh, then that Monday, I went back. Went back to Youngstown. And when I got off the plane, the press was waiting for me there. Mm. And you know, right, and that was the first time, you know. And my my, my uh, lawyers and uh, family, they just rushed me out. I didn't answer no questions. And when I came home, it hit. It was a, you know, not only in America. I guess the one. You know, I went over the wire sure. because it was an international fight, sure. and so um, surely, you know, th- that's when things started really getting. That's when reality said that that I'm getting calls from from TV stations all over the world, um, NBC or ABC, and all the network uh, national networks here, CBS. They were calling to have interviews with me, and I just, I just, you know, it was. It was Things were happening so fast, and I couldn't comprehend everything. I just didn't know how to what to do, yeah. and you know, it, it's just it was it was a whirlwind time. Um, boxing not only you know um, was I getting beat up by the press, but the boxing itself was on the ropes, so to speak. Yeah, you know, and then you know we'd have networks that were that I had uh, the, you know networks that uh, going on people going on national TV saying here's a kid who's a Catholic Christian boy saying that. You know he's a Catholic Christian, but yet he's doing a he's in he's in a sport such as boxing where he's bringing harm, and his job is to to knock other people unconscious and other people and bring pain to other people. I mean things like that, and it was like man, it hurt, it hurt bad. So <laughs> like, that's yeah. that's when things started happening. That's when I re- you know realized that well this is this is, is life, big? this is reality, yeah. and we have you know. And I so I was asked to go on ABC Good Morning America, and I asked Father Nill to go on with me, and he got the okay from the bishop, mm. and he went on with me, and they were asking him questions about, you know, what is the rationale of uh, being a, you know, a Catholic priest, supporting uh, somebody like me, who's on my fights, and how can he justify it? And so Father did a great job of yeah. answering that I thought but you know that, those are the things that were, I was coming into their attack
3: I, for. I can imagine and, and Ray for, for you personally in your quiet moments over the following days and then weeks so Kim passes away five days after the fight yeah. Yeah. so th- the following weeks and months it, is it guilt that you feel is it? Is it do you feel sorry for yourself like how could this happen to me are, are you, what are those no, weeks no, and months never, like ne- are you depressed no I never
4: no I never felt sorry for myself I, that's not who that's not me that's not my makeup I, I didn't feel sorry for me I feel, certainly felt sorry for him, yeah. his family yeah. felt you know deep compassion for his family, I, and, and and I felt for my family. I my mother, when I put my mother and father through, my mother was crying every day, and I didn't want to have to see her through, you know my mother crying because she was my mother was in p- pain for me. Yeah, my mother was say, Raymond, I wish there was something I something I could do. I said, "Ma, there's nothing you could do. Mm. There's nothing you could do. You've done everything. You know, you've tried. I I have to get through this on my own."
3: And how did you? you? Know? What were you What were you feeling when you were on your own?
4: Well, well, you know, the, you know, you, again, you said guilt. Oh, yeah, the guilt. You know, the guilt was was severe. Yeah. And, but, but, you know, again, I'm a realist, and I, 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 felt, of course, I was part of it. I felt guilty about what happened, but that was not my intention. That was the whole thing. You know, people always talk about intent. Yeah. And that's the one thing Father Neil, and me talked about. When, 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 when somebody, like, if a man's driving down the street in a car and a young child runs out in front of him. And the man his child died. Well, the man's responsible, but that's not his intent. He didn't try it. He wasn't meant to. He was just driving. Yeah. The, the kid ran out in front of the street. Yeah. But the man can't take it. You know, he can't separate himself from it because he's part of it. But that's not his intent. Yeah. So that was the one thing father Noah kept telling him after. And he "Ray, it's the intent. My intent as a fighter is to win." My intent is sometimes I have to knock guys out. My chance is to win. My intent was not to hurt my opponent. Mm. My chance is not to, 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 you know, maybe to take him out, knock him out. But that's yeah, it's a temporary thing, but not permanently. Mm. You, you our, the intent was to win a, uh, to win a fight. It's a sporting event, so that's what helped me get through it. You yes. know what I mean? Yeah. The Point is that I knew my intent it was not that. Yeah. And um, and the only problem is after that is. So eventually you get through it. Eventually you get through it. But again, the pain don't go away. And people say some cruel things. I mean, the public, some cruel people are. We're the we're, we're the cruellest creatures on this planet. Blame. Like, like what? Could, like what, Ray? Well, people say to me, you know, hey, uh, Bumble, let me ask you something. Let me ask you something. What's it like to kill a guy? God. And I just look at these people like, are you are you kidding me? Or I say, hey, let me ask you something. We know it's not your fault, but what it was what it was like when you saw him go down and never, you know, he was never given getting up again. But here's the one that I always remember. I went a couple of days later. I went to my nephew's football game, and I'm watching on the sideline. A little kid, a little kid, about eight nine years old, I don't know, comes up to say, "Boom, boom, boom!" How oh, high? He says, "You know who I am?" And I start, he goes, "I'm Duku Kim's son." Now this is a little kid. You know, this kid ain't that smart to say that. And obviously, I, I, somebody put him up to that. Mm. And you know, I just you can't believe these things. So this was the type of stuff. Or that'd be going... Now, I, I stayed at my house for a long time, you know, for, for four or five days, almost a week straight. I did, but I was getting stir-crazy. Yeah. So I asked. My, I said, I want to go out and get something to eat. I asked my friends, I said, can we go? And we called the restaurant ahead of time, and they put me in a the corner and said, we'll, you know, put you in a secu- uh, secluded area. But certain, certainly, it didn't take long for the word to get out that I was there. And then people would come up and come over, and that's when they'd make these comments. Like, well, hey, let me ask some Boom, like to kill a guy? what's it feel like you know things like that like flip it yes, like not yes, thinking yes. no and that was the type stuff that hurt me the most I think that's the thing that hurt me the most so,
3: you, so, yeah go on you know, I, I was, no no that's all I'm just yeah, saying no, that, was it's, it's, that was a painful it's, thing it's that was a painful it's thing it's kind of hard you know. to imagine um, like are you ever realistically ever going to be able to come become the same fighter again or does it change how you fight or what impact does it have on well, your career I mean,
4: you know the, the funny thing is look I fought after that <laughs> I knocked guys out after that I had them hurt I, I put them away Uh I didn't think I changed because I had to make a peace with myself to know that if I was going to move forward, I couldn't hold back. If I was going to move forward, I would have to be the same, try to be the same fighter I was before that. Mm. Uh, because, you know, if not, then that's when you get hurt. You know, that's how... I, but people in my corner, my tr- sister trainer, Chuck Fagan, Chucky Fagan said that, that he knew I was different. My buddy Tank DeSysio. He said, he, he, he knew I was different. Mm. They saw thought, I, and I, I never saw that. And uh, Chucky would say, it was just things I'd say during the conversation, you know, comments I'd made that not knew I was changing. But here's what I'd tell people. The, difference I, the only difference for me, I realized, was, you know, before, my, when I first started fighting, my attitude was, or before that fight, I'd get in the ring and I'd say, you're getting carried out or I'm getting carried out. Mm. One of us is getting carried mm. out tonight. But after that, my feeling was, oh, God, please don't let me get hurt. I don't, my, you know, my my family needs me. Uh, please help me, help me to, you know. I was always pray for safety for me and my opponent. I always pray for that. But for whatever reason, it was this time, please don't, you know, I never worried about getting hurt. But this time, I was like, I was praying, please don't let me get hurt. Don't let nothing happen to me. To, you know, things like that. So uh, I, I look, if you look at my fights after that, I fought, I was like, I think I fought with the same intensity. I, I again, I knocked guys out and I never stood I had them hurt. I went after them. But, um, Somewhere along the way, Chucky and Tank said that I they, they started changing me. they yeah. had say, so I I can't answer that. They didn't have
3: I know um certainly CBS we're no longer as keen because suddenly you're you're the guy involved in the Kim fight and boxing's under huge pressure nationally, so you know, you've gone from being the twenty-one year old superstar, the good looking guy, the world champion who's gonna get all the endorsements, every kind of endorsement going, and be on CBS for the next ten years of your life and a multimillionaire to well, God, I don't know, can we put this guy on TV in, in the same way? And, and and that's a big factor here as well. Um I, I saw I, like I, again. It, I think a lot of people just have huge sympathy with you and and how you try and make peace with something like that. Where, as you say, intent intent is everything. I saw I, I saw a quote of yours. I, I don't know if I have it exactly right, but that um, you've seen Kim in your dreams. You you believe in that stuff. You 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 might tell us about that.
4: Uh, yeah, I, I you know it was after that. You know, people say yeah. I, I you know when I say my prayers, I pray for him, pray for his soul, pray for his family, and then. It was, you know, not long, you know, a couple of years after or so that Kim came to me in one of my dreams. And it was very, very real, very real to me. Obviously, I woke up, you know, and I was kind of startled. And, um, but I knew for, you know, I, I believe in dreams. I believe I believe in guardian angels. I believe in things like that. And I believe somehow because it must have known what I felt. I believe that it came to me in my dreams. And, and basically, we, we just talked, and he would let me say, "Look, I'm I'm fine, I'm okay." And I was able to understand them. I don't know if you speaking English or speaking Korean, but you know, in your dreams, I was able to understand them. <laughs> yeah. You know, and um, that I just I'm don't worry, I'm I'm fine. It's not your fault. it just things happen, and this was my this is you know this was my journey. This is part of my destiny, and I and and that was it. And when I woke up, I felt a, a bit of peace. I felt mm. a bit of peace mm. that I was able to make that. I I do believe, like I said, I do believe in dreams. Look, it happens when my brother comes to me in my dreams at times, you know, and there's times uh, my brother comes to me in my dreams and the same thing. I'd be thinking about him and he let me know that he was okay and not to worry and, you know, just keep moving forward in life. Mm. So, um, I believe in that. So, you know, for whatever reason, it gave me, again, it gave me a bit of comfort, so.
3: I watched your the, the documentary last night, "The Good Son: The Life of Ray Boom Boom Mancini," who's our guest here, and um, like just to add a whole other really thick layer onto the story, uh, Kim, who you fought back in '82, has a pregnant fiance at home, just yeah. to just to make everything a million times worse, and uh, his son Joanne, who obviously never gets to meet his father, is born, grows up, learns about his father, learns about you, and and your documentary finishes with Juan and young me, his uh, fiance, traveling to America to meet you. And honestly, like, having watched uh, the documentary, as you're sitting on your steps in front of your door and you know that they're coming up in the in the car and he gets out, I mean, it's it's very hard to even verbalize that moment. I, well, I can't imagine what it was like for you.
4: Well, you know, it's funny because people said to me afterwards, how many times did you shoot that? I said, "Excuse me." How many times? You sh- how many takes that? T-? I said, "Are you kidding me?" Yeah. I told the director, uh, Jesse Miller, Jesse James Miller, I said, "Jesse," because I was sitting there and I was thinking. I didn't know how well I was in the house and react. That's that's right. Like you said, the moment you see me, what you see is for real. I'm. I, I didn't know. I, I wasn't too nervous up to that point, and then it started just getting to me. What am I going to say? How's he going to respond? How am I going to respond? All these things go through your mind, and. I said to Jesse, Jesse, get your camera guys ready. Cause they had two other, he had two cameramen besides we had, you know, you had the, the master and they had two other cameras to get them ready. Cause whatever you get, you get, I can't do this again. I can't do this again. No. So whatever it was, you saw, you saw. And, and finally when he pulled up, um, you know, he came out and what a sharp young man, mm. you know, with and very, very well spoken. And I was able to, I didn't know exactly what to say to him because you see, I stumble and fumble with my words mm. when he's there to say hello. <laughs> my kids come out to say hello, but what really got to me is when his mother came out, and what a sweet, sweet woman! Mm. That got to me. That got to me the most. And um, even when they left, and we were having at the dinner, when the are seeing at dinner later, when she's crying, that that killed me inside because he was a man who she was supposed to spend the rest of her life with. Yeah. and she's pregnant with his child. And he's taken by my hands, and that that killed me. I had an enormous sense of guilt again after that, for her, right. because of her. Right. And that wasn't her; that she was the sweetest lady. She gave me, you know, she absolved me of any anything to do with, you know, and any sin, so to speak. She absolved me of my sin, so to speak. Hmm. That she they held nothing against me, and, and and it was great to hear that from him, and the son, and the mother, but. I didn't know what to expect beforehand, but they were just lovely, lovely people. Um, I'm hoping to go back to Korea and see them. I haven't kept in touch with them like I'd like to, but you know, people's lives move on. I tell people they. People say you still in touch with them, and I said we were. After that, we were for a little bit, but not anymore because people get on with their lives and there's no need to hold back. You know, mm. and when I go to Korea if, again, if they come to America again, I hope they get in touch with me. But that moment, in time we had, and we and. I'm always going to be connected to their, in their lives. They're always going to be connected to mine. But uh, at that moment, we haven't spoken mm. in a while. So yeah, it was that was rough. Man, that was rough. I, I didn't know what to expect. I was I wanted to meet him because he wanted to meet me, and I thought I owed it to him. Yes. The, the son, the, the, you want to the meet him, but I didn't know what to expect. And man, would you see it? I, I was. Uh, I started getting man inside. I was dying a little bit inside, and uh, but it was one of the best things I ever did.
3: I can imagine yeah i can I can imagine for them as well and because it's uh yeah, it's, it's 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 complicated, you know, um is life good now
4: yeah, oh yeah, my life's very good, thank god, thank you yeah i mean i'm I'm back in my hometown of youngstown i was Santa Monica, California for thirty years, but I came back to youngstown three years ago, it was three years ago, actually three years ago uh twenty you know what in a couple of days two days I came back the twenty fifth of November of two thousand and fourteen. And the reason I came back home was uh, I'm in the entertainment business now. So I wanted to come home to create a full digital media studio in downtown Youngstown. You okay. can't be sitting in Santa Monica saying you're going to be doing things in downtown Youngstown. You know, even when I talk to their marriage, I say, Raymond, where are you at? You got to be here. Mm. So that's the reason I came back. Okay. Um, but I'm, re- you know, I remarried and, and my wife's from Youngstown originally and she was out in LA with me for three years, but she's, we're, we're it's good to be back home. It's good to be back home. And, um, um, uh, so I, I, it just things are good for me right now, and and my, my life's good, and um, you know I I just I thank God every day that uh I, for all the good things I have, and mm. you know again, you know for a long time I would say, you know, I, you know I, I would like you said earlier, you asked me if I I say God why 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 does this have to happen? Yeah. to me. But then but then you know but then I'm not never been that type of go, You know what? Why not me? Why not me? Why should I be absolved of those type of things? Let things happen in life. Good Lord, let things happen in people's lives for whatever reason. We don't always understand it, but we have to have belief. My faith tells me, my faith and my trust and belief, let's know, it'll it'll be exposed to me someday. But at the moment, it was. It is what it is. So I'm the guy, you know, and it's okay. That's okay.
3: I'm not in the habit of saying it often to people that we interview, but you're an amazing fella. And, ah, it's um, very
4: kind. That's very kind. No, I it's it's.
3: It, I can only imagine how difficult it all was, and I'm glad you found some kind of peace. So,
4: oh no, I'm yeah, I, yeah, I'm at peace with things now, and I finally, when I met the young man, I was I was at peace with things for a long time, and no, look, that's one, That's how I was able to move on. People say, how were you able to move on? I said because I'm, I'm, I rely on my faith in Christ. I said my prayers, and I moved on. Mm. No, I, I can't. And it's the same thing when you go through a painful. I was going through my divorce. Uh, you know, we go through a divorce. You have children involved, pain, your you ache, because if it's because you have children, if it's just you and the, the woman, you go, Hey, look, I love you, you know, but I want and I want you to be happy and aim with me. Good luck to you, good luck to me. But when you have children involved, you pain because of what you're doing, you're breaking up a family, you're taking them you know, so it's hard. That was difficult too. But again, what do you, you rely on your faith, rely on your trust in God, and you move on. And you have to. Because if you don't move on, you get stuck and left behind. Some mm. people never move on with their lives. Mm. I've seen people, things happen. i see other fighters that have had uh, fatalities in the ring uh, and I've spoken to these young fighters and talked to them and told them, man, you know, this is how I dealt with it. I hope you'll be able to make your peace but you got to be able to move on. one way or Whether you fight again or not, you have to move on in your
3: life. Yeah. Well, it's certain, it's, it's cer- it certainly sounds like Father O'Neill gave you good advice. Listen. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Uh, Ray, thanks so much. What a, what a pleasure uh, and uh, thanks well, for thank doing this. thank you.
4: I appreciate it. And look, I hope God willing, I've been to every other place. I've been to the other countries over England and Wales and Scotland this past year, this past summer. Next year, it's going to be Ireland.
3: Okay. Sure. Well, come on I in. Want to come, come on All my yeah. Irish brothers. Come into us if you're in Dublin.
4: Oh, that's a done deal. Absolutely. Okay. If
3: I come there, I look forward to it. All right. Thanks. See
2: you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Right, you've been listening to Ray Boom Boom Mancini uh, speaking with Joe on the show all the way back in 2017. It is truly remarkable stuff, and I suspect there's lots of people out there in their cars who are like uh, who have arrived home from their commute and are still stuck in their car. And that's the whole point of these um, these bits, and, and that's why we still talk about that around the office all the time. Um, a
1: huge response to it. Yeah, again, like it was. We had Twitter accounts and off the ball. We weren't. Uh like it wasn't the cutting edge of the, the digital sphere necessarily, but you were getting live reaction on text machine and and tweets. That to that end, I suppose that it's one of those pieces. If you catch yourselves listening to it, you're not going to turn off. And we didn't exactly know what to expect when we did it, and it, it just turned out to be a very memorable item in the end.
2: Off the ball. This is news talk. Right, very sure, welcome back. And um, we're entering the final half hour of um, your time with us here. I mean you know the hard shoulder what, what do they ever do that's any good yeah sure there'll be a lot of um, don't be stealing your like don't be stealing all our sports guests now for them well we'll see about that well we'll have to just stop them at the door <laughs> there'll be like, a, like the anchorman scenes Pat and Evan on the final furlong oh
1: it's my god get ready for it I'd like to point out this uh, this final hour wasn't my idea this would seem very self-indulgent but this
2: was a uh, well, well it's an opportunity you, for you, us you, to showcase you, some of our great work and uh, essentially yours too so nobody thought it was a bad idea yeah, well, that's true. What are we doing
1: here? So, um, 2016, so as I was saying, I had just come out of DCU and was here on placement. And I, fresh from a thesis on the Mexico City games and the 1968 Black Power salute and all the way with that. So the trust of the what I was writing about in that was how the coverage in 1968 differs from how it's revered now. So you can imagine how the local press and... National press in America dealt with someone, you know, or two people, in fact, defacing their national anthem on the world stage, and the underlying reasons behind it, like whatever, which is perfectly understandable, didn't come to bear until later. But it was really nasty coverage in in the immediate aftermath from all quarters. Like there's there's, um, esteemed broadcasters now who are in hall of fames, halls of fame rather, who were very critical and you, you talk to them same people now I'd say they'd regret the remarks they made then and similarly we can look back through the prism of over 50 years on and say this is such a brave thing to do but it's very easy to write those articles decades later it's it's, it's difficult to take the stand early, early on and very few people did Harry Edwards them. had been an advisor to those guys yeah so one of the interviewees um that I, that I touch base with on that was Dr. Harry Edwards who was the point man for so much of that stuff like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and and plenty others um, built their off-court, off-field careers and their ethos around Ed, Edwards' principles. So um, I remember dealing with Tommy Rooney at the time and we managed to get um, Harry Edwards through Berkeley University, I believe is where he was. So uh, just... With the one of the logistical issues of American guests, obviously the the time difference. So whatever way we got him on from a California line, and you did this piece, so um, it was obviously in safe hands, and I was just able to maybe feed some tidbits from from the work in DCU into that, and it, it turned out to be just an extraordinary piece in the context of what people would have been watching at the time. I think everybody was watching it, uh, sports fans wise. The O.J. Simpson Made in America documentary, which. It's just a masterclass in documentary making and as much as it's an O.J. profile, it distills masterfully the the underlying tensions which came to a bubbling end there.
2: Now, every night this week, BT Sport are showing O.J. Made in America. It's a seven and a half hour documentary, ostensibly about O.J. Simpson, but really it's about American history and in particular the story of race in America from the civil rights movement in the 1960s all the way to today. It's obviously a particularly relevant study at the moment, given the murders of two black men by police in Baton Rouge in Minnesota and then the subsequent murder of five policemen in Dallas at a march to protest these killings. To talk to us about all this and to put some historical context on the athletes who protest is Dr. Harry Edwards, the Professor Emeritus of Sociology Department of UC Berkeley. Dr. Edwards, thanks very much for joining us.
5: Thank you very much for having me.
2: You've been part of the leadership group of black athletes protesting all the way back to the mid to late 1960s. And with that in mind, I'm wondering, do you feel today's athletes are doing enough to be leaders of their community?
5: Well, I think every generation of athletes finds their own uh, voices, uh, finds their own space uh, in terms of making political and culturally relevant statements. Uh, The United States um, is a society that is substantially built upon uh... freedom of the speech and mass movements uh... and uh... the athletes have always been part of that going back to jack johnson uh... and his insistence that uh... he was a legitimate enough uh... boxing prospect that he should have a shot at the uh... heavyweight championship at a time when american uh... white american boxers were absolutely opposed to uh giving blacks uh, that opportunity. Then of course you have Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis and their whole uh role uh in terms of um, the um, uh uh Aryan supremacist uh, ideologies and so forth of Germany uh in World War two uh right into uh, the nineteen fifties, post World War two years with uh Jackie Robinson and uh Larry Doby and Earl Lloyd and Chuck Cooper in basketball and of course Kenny Washington and uh uh Woody Strode uh Marion Motley and Bill Willis in football all of whom were battling uh issues not just within the arena Uh, but uh, their struggles had implications beyond the arena. And then in the 1960s, of course, uh, you had uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, the godfather of the movement and struggle in the 1960s waged by athletes. You had Tommy Smith and John Carlos, Bill Russell, Jim Brown, uh, most certainly Kurt Flood, who struck uh, a blow for uh, freedom for professional athletes uh, when he challenged... Uh, the right of uh, teams to move athletes around without their uh, consent. Uh, so uh, there's a long history of struggle, but the thing that you have to recognize is that every generation of athletes fights those struggles within the context of their own times. Uh, today, uh, you have athletes talking about um, uh, strikes and one thing or another. Some or even, uh, uh, have even floated the notion of a boycott of the 2016 Olympics, uh, as a consequence of these killings and so forth. Uh, but uh, their circumstances today are different than the circumstances in the 1960s. We have athletes that are literally walking corporations. And if LeBron James and Steph Curry and Serena Williams uh, and Carmelo Anthony and some of these other great players walked into a mayor's office or governor's office and said, We want something done about these killings. Uh, whether it's the killing of uh, of, uh, of young black men and women or, and children, or whether it's the killing of police officers, uh, there's no way that that governor or that or that, that mayor tells that uh, group of athletes to get lost. Uh, we couldn't have done that in the 1960s. We didn't have that kind of power. We didn't have that kind of cachet. So uh, every generation fights these struggles within the context of their own uh, uh, times and uh I'm I'm very proud of the way that these athletes uh Uh, Today are are, are comporting themselves and uh, beginning to stand up and speak out.
2: Yeah, Carmelo Anthony just today has written a piece. I I read it on the Guardian's website. I I don't know where it was originally published, but it finishes with this paragraph. The teams and the support systems around athletes urge them to stay away from politics, stay away from religion, stay away from this, stay away from that. But at certain times, you've just got to put all of that aside and be a human being. That time is now. Yes,
5: yes. Uh, that's a clarion call for athletes to stand up and make a statement. And when you see uh, people such as Maya Moore, uh, who is the MVP of the uh, Women's uh, uh, NBA uh, Professional Basketball League, and her teammates walk on the field, uh, walk onto the court uh, with T-shirts on saying change uh, you know, has, to, has to happen, uh, 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 a protest against the violence. And the killing and the shooting. Uh, that means that athletes uh, are finding their voices. Uh, Carmelo Anthony uh, is absolutely correct. This generation of athletes will make its statement. It doesn't have to necessarily be a repeat of uh, what happened in the past, um, it, it very seldom is. I mean, Muhammad Ali was not Joe Lewis. Smith and Carlos was not Jesse Owens. Uh, Bill Russell was not Earl Lloyd or Chuck Cooper or the Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, Jim Brown was not uh, Kenny Washington or Woody Strode. Uh, Kurt Flood most certainly was not Jackie Robinson. Each generation of athletes makes its own statement in its own context, in its own own way. And this generation of athletes will be uh, no exception.
2: I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the um, 1965 to 1969 period and, and the intersection at, at that time of Jesse Owens and O.J. Simpson. There was a, a part of Jesse Owens' career which, to be honest, I was completely unfamiliar with until watching a documentary a couple of weeks ago, which you were part of, where they're talking about how he actually tries to stop the uh, the 1968 Black Power salute from uh, Tommy Smith and, and John Carlos, which you were heavily involved in in orchestrating. And around the same time, piecing this all together, you're also in conversations with OJ, trying to convince him to become part of the movement of black athletes who are trying to organize a boycott, trying to just completely realize the power that they have to help the mass movement become even bigger. And it it struck me that there's just this weird intersection between those two guys and you're at the center of it.
5: Uh, Yes. Uh, um, Jesse Owens um, had a curious history. Uh, People forget uh, that in, uh, uh, in the, from 1966 to 1968, I mean, I was a student of sport and society. I was writing my dissertation at Cornell University on uh, the sociology of sport, which became uh, the uh, first integrated textbook in, in what was then a new sub-discipline. Uh, and um, I had studied Jesse Owen's history, and I found it amazing that in 1936 Jesse Owens was one of the leading black athlete voices uh, pushing for a boycott of the 1936 games as a consequence of what Hitler and the Nazis were doing uh, to minorities inside of Germany. It was only after Avery Brundage went over to Germany and came back with the word that this man Hitler is all right. Uh, and what's going on over there is largely uh, being distorted in the American media that uh, that uh, effort to uh, stage a boycott of those games um, was, uh, was crushed. I was also aware of, for example, just as another sidebar of two Korean athletes who did a demonstration on the Olympic podium after uh, winning first and third uh, in the uh, marathon uh, two Korean athletes, uh, who protested the occupation of the Korean Peninsula by the Japanese. They had to perform under the Japanese flag and resented it. So, uh, those, uh, one athlete who got first, uh, blocked the rising sun flag on his, uh, uniform with the oak tree that he was given, and the other athlete who got third, uh, bowed his head and kept his hands down to his side as opposed to putting them over his heart when the Japanese national anthem was played. So I was aware of all of that history. So when Jesse Owens uh, was sent in uh, by the uh, United States Olympic Committee to um, uh, discourage, in point of fact, to threaten uh, athletes uh, who might uh, uh, and do anything uh, demonstrable Against racism and discrimination and the killings that were taking place of black people in American society, including the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, I found that uh, a curious turn of events for a man who, in 1936, initially was one of the forces trying to organize a boycott, uh, athletes' boycott of the 1936 Olympics. And some of the things that he said and was compelled to say. Were were so contradictory. I mean, one of the things that he said was, uh, if you guys demonstrate or do anything uh, that would tend to be perceived as embarrassing the United States or the United States Olympic team, uh, you won't be able to get a job when you get back home. And I think it was John Carlos who stood up and said, Jesse, what are you talking about? I can't get a job now. <laughs> so I mean, it was the kind of thing that um, uh, he was. Um, uh, almost uh, pressed into, and I think that ultimately uh, he regretted it. He wrote a book, in point of fact, in 1972, uh, titled I Have Changed, uh, where he said something that I had never even uh, stated, which was that in 1970, any black person who is not a militant is either naive or a coward. I mean, that was something stronger than I had ever about O.J. Simpson, Jesse Owens, or anybody else. Yeah, so uh, I think that he um, he changed, but uh, there's no question that uh, he played a, uh, a convoluted uh, kind of role in that whole process.
2: Well, because in, in his 1968 book, the, the previous book to that, he'd actually opened it with a quote from you calling him a bootlicking Uncle Tom. So obviously something really massive happened in his life some Damascene conversion, some that the scale fell from his eyes somehow, and he realized that he'd actually been somehow serving completely the wrong thing.
5: Oh, absolutely. And um, let let me say something as well. Um, You're absolutely right. He opened his book, and point of fact, his autobiography is basically uh, an open challenge to me. Uh, black think is an open challenge to me and that youth movement uh... and he opens it as you state with a quote from me where i stated jesse owens is a bootlicking uncle tom and that is something uh... that i regret to this day because jesse owens was not an uncle tom bootlicking or otherwise jesse owens was afraid america in the america that he grew up in and the america that he came of age in was uh, almost institutionally committed to frightening black people, whether it be through the Ku Klux Klan, the various uh, uh, law enforcement agencies, uh, the institutional structures uh, where black uh, uh, humanity was demeaned and devalued. Uh, America was in the business of frightening black people. And Jesse Owens was afraid. He was afraid for this country. He was afraid for black people. He was afraid for us. And he did not understand that we were not afraid, that we had dispensed with the fear. Uh, And it was a consequence of the experiences that we had. My generation was the generation of Emmett Till. And I remember uh, talking to my father about that. Uh, lynching of Emmett Till and looking at the pictures of Emmett Till in Life magazine and in Jet magazine, his mutilated and bloated body, and asking my father, what's going to happen to the people who did this? And my father looked at me and said, absolutely nothing. My father, in my eyes at that time, when I was 12, 13 years old, was the biggest, strongest man that, in, in my life. I, th- I thought that there was nothing that he could not do. Uh, he was six three and a half, two hundred and thirty five 235 pounds, with a 34-inch waist. He was a sprinter. He could run. Uh, you know, he had done time and stayed prison. I thought he was the biggest, baddest, toughest man in the world, and for the first time, when we were discussing Emmett Till, I saw something in his eyes that I had never seen before and that was fear. And that was the same thing that I saw in Jesse Owens. Uh, Jesse Owens was afraid. He was afraid for us. He did not understand that we had dispensed with fear. Uh, the Emmett Till experience, we watched as four little girls were bombed in a church. We watched as Mega Evers was shot in the back. We, uh, I was doing my master's thesis on the black muslim family at cornell in nineteen sixty four the summer and fall of nineteen sixty four uh... and i was working with some of malcolm x's congregation in new york city in february of nineteen sixty five while i was actually doing that research malcolm x was assassinated uh... martin luther king i met with him on january seventeenth nineteen sixty eight uh... in april of nineteen sixty eight he was assassinated we were supposed to meet again on april 28th of nineteen sixty eight he didn't make it uh, I uh, was also working with students at San Jose State to make placards in preparation for Bobby Kennedy coming to Northern California. He was speaking in Southern California. He didn't make it. He was shot and killed in Southern California, never made it to the rallies and so forth that we had planned for Northern California. But then my 21st birthday was November the 22nd, 1963. And so I had a whole... Uh, uh, cultural and personal memory uh, and involvement uh, with these murders and with this violence. And so we had, me and my generation, had dispensed with fear, and that was something that Jesse Owens simply did not understand, could not comprehend. Uh, While our white uh, radical peers were talking about don't trust anybody over 30, People like me and H. Rap Brown and Stokely Carmichael and Hewitt Newton and Bobby Seale and Eldridge Cleaver and Angela Davis and so forth, we didn't expect to live to be 30. So we dispensed with fear, which made us the freest people in the world to speak our mind and to do what we felt had to be done. Jesse Owens had a difficult time uh, dealing with that, and he, he was not an Uncle Tom. He was afraid, and he was afraid in part. For us, and if you read between the lines in his autobiography, Black Think, as much as he castigates me, uh, in the open letter to a young Negro, that a chapter of that book that he writes to me, uh, it becomes very, very clear that he wasn't an Uncle Tom. He was afraid in the same sense that my father was afraid for me, himself, and for black people in this country.
2: And something changes in the two years where he says he was completely wrong, and and he he becomes a, a woke, a woken person. And do you feel that you had influence in that? Because it's around this time that you start to realise the power of the athletes. It's around this time that you you get to set up the movement that calls for the boycott of the nineteen sixty eight Olympic Games, which ultimately doesn't happen. But it does lead to something maybe even better, which is this iconic moment in sports history where two athletes, first and third on the podium, raise their fist in the Black Paris salute, and they get sent home. And, and so maybe, you know, it becomes a much bigger story than if they hadn't been there in the first place.
5: Oh, absolutely. But, but look, um, again, you know, I was an Ivy League PhD student, writing my dissertation, uh, even during my activist years and my time with the Black Panther Party and organizing the Olympic Project for Human Rights. I knew the history of sports, I was aware of the two Korean athletes. I was aware of Jesse Owens history prior to him going to the 1936 Olympic Games. I was also aware that we were not going to get a unified uniform uh, uh, boycott by blacks of the 1968 games. I mean, OJ Simpson taught me that much in my conversations with him. He did not want to exchange white racism for black orthodoxy, black power, or any other form of ideological orthodoxy that might have been on the scene at that time. O.J. Simpson wanted to be judged completely by the content of his character and the caliber of his competence. He did not feel any more obligation to step up and stand up for black people, despite the fact that he was standing on the shoulders of those who had sacrificed before him he felt he should have no more obligation to stand up for black people than Larry Bird should have to stand up for poor whites in Appalachia and French Lake Indiana. He just didn't feel that obligation. And so automatically I knew that that was a parallel path, a parallel universe of black commitment that was moving right alongside the new militancy among athletes. So I never expected that we would have a unified uniform boycott of the games. I, I knew that the historically black institutions, which is still where at that time many of the great black athletes, the Ralph Bostons, the Bob Beeman's, and others, the uh, Jim Hines out of Texas Southern, uh, those black schools were where many of these athletes came from and there were uh, coaches and people in those institutions who made it very clear. Any athlete who even advocated, much less participated, in any Olympic project for human rights uh, activities would be um, uh, uh, dismissed from school, not just from the Olympic team, but from school, because there was no way that these schools go to these white legislators upon whom they were dependent for their funding and explain how athletes coming out of those programs at those schools were advocating a boycott of the 1968 Olympic Games. And so we knew that we were not going to have the athletes from the historically black schools, which were who were most of the athletes participating in the games on behalf of the United States. We also knew that there were athletes like Charlie Green and Mel pender who were in the military and who were literally participating and preparing for the Olympic Games under orders. Hmm. They were not going to uh boycott the games. So from the outset I was aware of the history of the games I was aware of the demonstrations that took place at the, on the podium at the games I was aware that Avery Brundage who was head of the United States Olympic Committee uh, in 1936 had removed Jews from the American track team and replaced them with Ralph Metcalf and uh, Jesse Owens because he was afraid not of offending the sensibilities of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler had ceased to participate uh, to to attend the games uh, by the time the relays were run. He had removed them because he was afraid that they would stage some demonstration on the podium uh, during the 1936 Olympic Games. I was aware of all of that history. So in pushing for a boycott, what I did was to create a universe of thought that enabled us to uh, move forward with other options and also provided some cover for those athletes who were simply trying to make the team with some prospect of demonstrating once they got there, as had been the case in 1936. And so when people were saying after all of the athletes had qualified and were on the plane, on the way, to Mexico City and so forth. Well, Dr. Edwards, are you calling off the boycott? Is the boycott over? I made the statement straight out. There are many, many ways to boycott. No, I am not calling the movement off. I am not calling the boycott off because I understood the prospects for other things developing because they had already developed at the 1936 games, even though they were not noted They were mostly forgotten history, but that reality was there. And so I think that Jesse Owens, looking back over his own history and understanding some of my writings and what happened in 1968 had a change of heart in terms of his whole disposition toward that movement. I think also Jesse Owens' children and grandchildren made it clear that he had to take another look at the stance that he had taken relative to the black athletes in 1968.
2: A change of heart which restores his place in American black sports history as a hero, I suspect, in a way that there will never be a rehabilitation for O.J. Simpson. Is that fair?
5: Well, uh, Jesse Owens doesn't need to have his position restored. Jesse Owens uh, was a victim of the system that we were fighting against. We understood that um, in our uh, rhetoric and the urgency that we felt uh, of the moment, in our uh, anticipation that perhaps we would not be around to make other statements, uh, given the rates at which uh, black militant youth in this country was under attack in the late 1960s, uh, the murder of Mark Clark uh, and Fred Hampton, the shootings of Black Panthers across the country, uh, the fact that over 3,000 black Americans lost their lives from 1954 when Brown versus Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas, uh, edicts came out of the Supreme Court integrating uh, schools and uh, removing separate but equal as the law of the land Up through the assassination of Dr. King, over 3,000 black people lost their lives in this country. We didn't expect to be around to make uh, corrective assessments and statements later. So our rhetoric soared, our uh, condemnation of those who confronted and opposed what we knew uh, to be the truth uh, soared. And so, uh, but Jesse Owens didn't, doesn't need to be rehabilitated in terms of his place in the pantheon of great American uh athletes. Uh that situation was safe. What he has done is pretty much the same thing that Muhammad Ali did. Uh change course and say, uh this is where we should be headed and I was wrong. That in and of itself uh is uh is commendable. O.J. Simpson has never been about anything but O.J. Simpson and uh now that he's in the straits that he's in, that's what he has to fall back on. Unfortunately, there was never anything there of uh commendable substance. Uh and and that's what he's uh that's what he's left with. I do not put OJ Simpson uh in the same uh category as uh Jesse Owens. I do not put OJ Simpson in the same category as Jim Brown or of any of the other great athletes who, even when they were not totally correct, uh, they were trying to do and say something of substance uh, beyond uh, the box scores uh, and what their athletic prowess brought to them in terms of uh, financial and other rewards.
2: The, the conversation that you had with OJ trying to recruit him to be part of the movements was that a straightforward conversation? Did he entertain it at any point? Did he think about, actually, you know what, maybe there is something here for me? Or was it straight out, I'm I'm, I'm not interested, I'm just, I'm not black, I'm OJ, was the quote that uh, everybody keeps going yeah, back to. Yeah,
5: uh, it was straight up. It was straightforward. But I was not the first one to try to have this conversation with OJ. Jim Brown tried to have that conversation with OJ. OJ was the biggest collegiate sports name in the country for two years. Uh, His two years at USC were stellar. Uh, Here you had a handsome, articulate, profoundly gifted uh, athlete, black athlete, who had absolutely no consciousness in terms of any broader obligation. Even as Dr. Martin Luther King was shot down, even as black people were being washed down the street, with fire hoses like basketballs, uh, even as uh, dogs were being sicked on grandmamas and eight-year-old girls who uh, were out marching uh, in support of the right of African Americans to vote. O.J. Simpson had absolutely nothing to say about that because he feared it would somehow impact his endorsement and monetary um, options and uh that was the path that he consciously chose i wasn't the only one to approach oj simpson jim brown a number of other people approached oj simpson and he made it very very clear that he was not black i'm oj i don't identify with being black i'm oj and that is a marketable brand and that is what i am seeking to protect And that's fine. That's good. I mean, I can understand a person making that choice. And O.J. was straight up and honest about it. Uh, And I don't hold that against him. But don't then turn around and play the race card uh, when you're caught up in a double murder. Uh, And now all of a sudden you're going to become a victim of your blackness and being black in America. I mean, I don't want to hear that. I mean, that's uh, uh, worse than um, uh, contradictory. Um, uh, That's uh, duplicitous to the point of um, almost being evil.
2: What's the fallout from the O.J. Simpson trial? Because watching the documentary over the last week, it's, it's just airing at the moment here in Ireland. You know, you can't but be struck that... It seems like there are a lot of lessons to be learned. I'm just not quite sure if I can grasp that anything specific has changed from the 1950s, the 1960s to last week.
5: Nothing. A great deal has changed. What is in question is how much progress has been made. You can't look at an African-American family in the White House and say that nothing has changed. Uh, You can't look at the numbers of black elected officials in America and say that nothing has changed. You can't look at a black police chief that is honored and loved and respected in Dallas, Texas, and say that nothing has changed. What is in question is how much progress has been made. And what the O.J. Simpson trial brought to the surface was the tremendous divisions and so forth that persist in American society. Uh, because we have failed to deal with what uh, is America's original sin. Uh, there's this uh, silly notion in America that it's that the America that the American original original sin was slavery. That's ridiculous because slavery came about as a consequence of what the real original sin was, which was a virulent, violent, deep-rooted white supremacy that still persists in American society. This is an issue that we have simply been unwilling to talk about uh, in an honest, straightforward fashion. White supremacy is still the preeminent cultural strain of uh, identity uh, and power in American society. O.J. Simpson's trial brought that out uh it wasn't that black people believed that um, O.J. Simpson was not guilty, in the same sense that they did not that they did not believe that the police uh, who murdered Mike Brown uh, were not guilty, or the guy that killed Trayvon Martin was not guilty, but they all walked. And in many instances, black people looked at the O.J. Simpson situation and said. This is one for our side, Uh, and O.J. walked uh, instead of being found guilty. So when we look at the issue of the O.J. Simpson trial, it comes down to one question. What constitutes progress in terms of this issue of race in American society? And for better and for worse, progress is one of those concepts That's a lot like profit. At some point, it comes down to who's keeping the books. And we had gotten to the place in American society that a lot of white America used O.J. Simpson as the measure of how much progress we had made in the area of race relations. He had endorsements, he had fame, he had fortune, he had recognition. And the only thing that they asked of O.J. Simpson was that he leave his blackness, his black culture, his black identity behind. Do not walk into the room with that, and we will give you riches beyond your greatest dreams, which is what they did until those two white corpses showed up on the doorstep of his wife's condo, his ex-wife's condo. And so... Uh, O.J. Simpson opened up that whole discussion of race and how much progress had actually been made and, in point of fact, how we define progress. A African-American family in the White House opened up those same kinds of questions. Uh, America today is as divided as it ever was because we have not dealt with the central contradiction of American life going back to the time that black people were defined as three-fifths of a human being in this society. And that question is the question of white supremacy.
2: It's a question that um, I can't see being answered anytime soon either.
5: No, it's not going to be answered finally anytime soon. Uh, It may never be answered finally. Because America is always and always has been a work in progress, and it's going to come down to we the people, what we the people down here on the ground decide to do. That's the message that came out of Dallas this week. It, the United States Constitution be, begins with the line, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union. It doesn't say we the presidents, or we the governors, or we the courts, or we the law enforcement uh, establishment, uh, or we the nonprofits or corporations. It says we the people. And that is an ongoing stru- uh, struggle. In American society, the challenges that we face in terms of achieving that more perfect union are dynamic and diverse. The struggle to bring about that achievement, therefore, is multifaceted and perpetual, and there are no final victories. We may never arrive at that shining city on the hill that America promises. We may never achieve a perfect union, but we can always struggle toward achieving that more perfect union. And so... The idea that somehow we're going to arrive at a post-racial America is nonsense. The idea that somehow we're going to arrive at a point where in this diverse society of immigrants, natives, and ex-slaves, we're going to somehow eliminate all problems of diversity is a pipe dream. But what is important is that the struggle continues. And I think that at its foundation, that is what America is about. That is what America offers the rest of the world, that despite our imperfections, look at what we have been able to achieve together. And most importantly, that struggle continues.
2: Well, Dr. Edwards, you've certainly done your bit for the struggle. Thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us here in Ireland this evening. And thanks so much for making so much time for us
5: thank you very much I appreciate it and I hope that uh, it's been worth your time
2: Right, that's Dr. Harry Edwards speaking to us in 2016 um, about about OJ Simpson but really about like um, that documentary that I think educated a lot of people about everything else that was going on um, so uh, Dr. Harry Edwards is a good guest you could say <laughs> yeah, and like very impressive character but I'd say it's one of those ones
1: you enjoy whereby it's um You can almost throw anything
2: at him and he'll tease it out with you. Well, this is all before Colin Kaepernick kneels and he worked for the 49ers and was was around that whole kind of... um you know, helping to shape that. So, you know, he goes all the way back to John Carlos and all the way up to Black Lives Matter now. And if you, there's loads more. He's written loads. You should check him out. He's actually on Twitter and he's fairly active on Twitter now as well. So, um, that was Dr. Harry Edwards there. So Ronan Mullen is uh, counting down some of his highlights, some of his highlights here on off the ball over the last five years before he jumped ship. Uh, the traitor all the way to, mm. to uh, getting out at like 7 o'clock is a big difference from getting out at 10 o'clock this is the thing uh, 53106 the text number here if you want to get in touch this evening stay tuned we have one more classic coming your way next off the ball this is News Talk right the final part of the final hour of uh, Ronan Mullen not the senator that was your um, your crappy quiz moniker yeah I'm like um, did you follow wrestling
1: no remember when, when Bret Hart threatened to leave WWF with the title Oh, I'm the reigning crappy quiz champion, so... So technically it dies with you. you that's why there was that today. On. Unless you get me back on. Oh, we uh, can definitely do that.
2: So that's uh, That's my way of keeping my foot in the door. Uh, okay, so this one, just explain a little bit about this. I think um, Joe gave the, the game away a little bit earlier for anybody who was uh, tuned in at 7 o'clock. Exactly what came to pass here. But tell us your side. Um. Well,
1: it'd be unsurprising to people to hear that like off the back of an All-Ireland final, the primary objective is to get some of the winners on. can be difficult on a Monday, you know, we've all well, we've all got a chance to celebrate our county doing well, and the Tipperary players were enjoying the revelry. So uh, I think we did ultimately get a couple on that night. But then, as the week progresses, we actually lo and behold, Jerry, yeah, we had a bit of breathing room between the hurling final and the football final—three whole weeks yeah. on like six days or whatever it is now. But a uh, different
2: era, a
1: but, bygone era when you know it was black and white, sepia tinted. It was like. You remember the coverage of that final? I say Tipperary people are a bit put out by how it was received. Where it was that oh, Tipperary did well, but like the the game was ruined by that red card. And I tend to agree. Richie's not that kind of player, etc. And we know we've had Richie Hogan on loads of times, uh, for different different reasons, Saturday panels and feature interviews, and he's always very generous with his time after games as well. But this would have been a good time for him to keep the head down. Like like people would have understood if he didn't want to talk about it in the immediacy uh, after an event like that and I think it was the Tuesday afternoon i touched base with him and it was kind of unsure and then by, as Joe said an hour before showtime he said, oh, I'm up for doing it if you still are and uh, we, we kind of nailed down the details and, and had him again it was a live item so uh, again, you're not quite sure what he's going to say but for someone in that position I think he, he dealt with it really well and he got his point of view across what was your view on the incident itself? Did you think it was a red card? I didn't really.
2: I mean, if you, if you think about the gazillion incidents in hurling matches, which aren't given as red cards, like it wouldn't have been given this year, for example, where you could basically assault your opponent. And so long as the ball popped out, yeah. and there wasn't a slowing down of the ball. You know, they, they've definitely, I think they've reflected on the impact that this sending off had in the game. There have been other sending off in matches, which didn't seem to have as, uh, um, Catastrophic effect on one side or the other, but I like. Look, you slow it down by the letter of the law, hundred percent. It's always a sending off, but you watch it in real time, and you take into account that it's a wet day. Yeah, you know. but how
1: how that red card came to define the outcome of that game in a way? Listen, the teams are at different junctures, but when Dublin lost Johnny Cooper in the first half of the football final, yeah, and were able
2: to this is the, the get to the finish line. It turned out it was the the last bit of that team we thought maybe, maybe this year was the last bit of that team under Cody but actually there's been a significant uh, change and I don't know it just would have been great if Tipperary had beaten the full Kilkenny team because then yeah. we'd know and um, Interesting, that,
1: that Iron final will be looked back on as a, a turning point in many ways because what, what's happened in Tipperary thereafter has been needless to say uh, packed with intrigue, but like I, I was at my first ever All Ireland hurling final a couple of weeks ago, and when Richie Hogan came off the bench and nailed that point over his shoulder, you're like good, I'm like that. I'm almost in the same spot where he got the red card, and I remember I was impartial on the day, like, but I remember just thinking I'd love nothing more than Richie Hogan to to win in an All Ireland, and it would be I'd be lying if it wasn't something to do with this the redemption arc of. Um, this
3: incredible interview you did with Joe. GAA on Off The Ball. Now our next guest is on the line. Kilkenny's Richie Hogan. You're there. You can hear us, Richie. I can, Joe, yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks a million for coming on. I must admit I was a bit surprised when you said you would come on. We're delighted to have you. I almost thought you'd have the phone off and be sitting somewhere alone away from the world for a couple of days.
6: Uh, yeah, I suppose. But look, I mean, that's not... Um it's not really the way I, I conduct myself to be honest with you so I just get up and I get on and move on obviously we're, we're hugely disappointed in Kilkenny after the weekend but um, life goes on and we, uh, we we move on from it
3: I was reading there were thousands in Nolan Park last night
6: uh, yeah there's was a good crowd yeah absolutely um, it was disappointing and, and, and the weather wasn't exactly fantastic either which obviously makes the crowd um, um, the, the size of the crowd that bit better but um, Obviously we're hugely appreciative to the to the to the families, uh, the fans, um, everyone on, on Obviously Kenny is a huge hurling county. Yeah. Um, huge support, um and with the year that was in it, um we had huge support all year and obviously we're very appreciative for them to come out and while it was a difficult weekend obviously for for everyone
3: in yeah, probably a strange enough atmosphere at those get-togethers for the losers of the final. On the one hand, it's right to acknowledge that it was a very good year and reaching an All-Ireland final was a good achievement and yet it is tinged with disappointment. Probably even weird for players to know kind of what mood to set. Uh,
6: yeah, I look, to be honest with you, I, I, I think just even to speak about the basics of it, Um It's, it's. I suppose in the modern game, there's not that many opportunities for the the players to meet the public um, in in that sort of an atmosphere. And obviously, they're thanking us for our efforts for the year, regardless of the result. And of course, we're thanking them for their support along the way. And we don't get too many official opportunities to do that so um i mean the afternoon Ireland final is obviously is obviously the most appropriate time regardless of the result
3: and what do you do as a group richard do, do you sit around and have a few drinks and and drain the sorrows and chat about the year or do lads want to get off when you've lost what what what's been the experience the last couple of days
6: um yeah exactly what you what you described yeah um that's that sitting down i suppose and uh I mean, on um, on Sunday, a lot of people are obviously quite tired, um, mm. and you know, some are quite upset, and some are um, just want to get up and down with it. And then others, of course, are um, are uh, sorry on the, on the following day. Then, I mean, lads are just relaxing, winding down, having a few drinks, um, and yeah, we just I suppose we just try and get through the few days. Really, it's more about getting a few days out of the way rather than um, looking forward to anything. To be honest,
3: yeah. So, look, I guess, I mean, yeah, invariably, you, you would appreciate the sending off is going to come up. Yeah, your memory of the incident?
6: Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I was going in for a shoulder, obviously. I mean, I, I, I actually, I, 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 he, I, I watched it back there um, uh, this morning. Obviously, I stayed away from it earlier on. But, I okay. mean, I, I was going in for a shoulder on Kyle Barrett and he sidestepped inside. And my momentum kind of took me through. Um, in my opinion, there's no, there's absolutely no way it was ascending off. But um, I suppose that's the way, it, that's the way these things go. I mean, um, sometimes those decisions go for you, and sometimes they go against. And um, yeah, it was one of those, one of those things for me.
3: You could see um, there was definite surprise in your body language when James Owens came over and spoke to you, and. It seems like you're looking down. It's almost you can always spot the moment you first glance the red card coming out, and you realise what's happening. Uh, what did he say to you? Because you did look like you were amazed.
6: Yeah, I suppose. Uh, look, it's it's, it's um, I suppose the first th- the first thing to to, to say about it is I was sure. I mean, it was clear as day for anyone who was at the match what I was trying to do. Um, Calabar picked up the ball. He was heading down the line. Um, and, and as he often does, and I suppose a, a great strength in his own game where he changes direction and, and cuts inside. Mm. Um, to, 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 get through. I mean, it's, it, 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 it's a big part of his own game. Um, and when I, when my momentum took me through, I thought, uh, first thing I thought was, right, turn around and, and, and get back after the ball. And then when I saw him on the ground, I thought, right, uh it's a it's a free um i i I was i was complaining about getting a yellow card to be be perfectly honest with you because it was one of those clearly accidental um honest challenges um in 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 my opinion and um i I just assumed he was taking the wrong card to be honest with you um because he stopped for a long time and then uh came back and i said right I'm going to have to get you a little card here now, so I'm going to have to be careful for the rest of the game. Mm. And then he took it, to it and I was just amazed. Down Sam. He, he, he made a gesture
3: those. to you where he almost kind of put his hand up to his neck as if to say, look, it's above the head. He, do you remember him saying that to you?
6: Yeah. No, he said, uh, I don't know. I'm sure I'm sure he's mic'd up, so somebody knows what he said, but I, I'm, I'm almost certain he said to me late challenge um, was, 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 was what he said to me. Um, uh, he absolutely did point up towards up towards the neck mm. um so I assume by pointing there he didn't need to say anything um but um yeah it's 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 disapp- it's disappointing but it's it's one of, it's look hurling is an incredibly difficult game to referee i mean it's it's there's a set of there's a set of rules there um there's a set of rules there and it's very hard to make up rules to fit the actual game because um I mean you have incidents where retrospectively retrospectively um, by the by the letter of the law um you know we we have hurlies in our hand I mean mm. if you if you go to stick a ball at at height and you miss the ball and you strike a guy in the face um and you get a red card. It's a red card. If you get a yellow card, it's a yellow card. If you don't, if it's just a free, it's just a free. It kind of depends on, on, on the interpretation of the actual rules. So it's not an easy game for mm. referees. So I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be pointing any blame at, at uh, James Owens. I wouldn't be pointing any blame at Carl uh, uh, Barrett. Um, I wouldn't be pointing any blame at anyone. Really, it's just, right. It's just uh, obviously a, a difficult situation.
3: Can I um, so like my interpretation of it was, and you can, by all means, give us your um. Response is the point. Is that under the new rules, it probably was a red because your elbow is just that bit high and your elbow does catch him. Um, and it looked as if you know, like yeah. you and him had had that coming together earlier in the game. Interestingly, Shane Dowling was on here yesterday and he felt that Barrett's tackle on you was a red card. You know, he said by the letter of the law, contact with your head, you were to go off as a blood substitute. He was actually adamant that should have been a red card. Now he thought your. Your moment was a red card too, but it looked like maybe a certain bit of frustration there on your part. You see Barrett against the sideline. You have a chance to kind of nail him fairly, put in a big shoulder. He checks back and elbow just comes up. Maybe it's a little bit instinctive. Maybe it's a little bit of frustration. But the yeah, fact is, yeah. beca- because the elbow just catches his helmet, then you know even if straight away you regret it and you are like, oh Jesus, it just I just threw the elbow at him. It just happened. Unfortunately, yeah. by the letter of the law, James Owens had no choice. That would probably be my sense of it.
6: Yeah, I and I, I can, like, I, so I, I watched it obviously back this morning a couple of times. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I don't know, because somebody said to me, I think it was yesterday, that um, they were talking about an elbow. Any talk about an elbow there is absolutely crazy. Um, my elbow does not connect with him at all. My shoulder absolutely does, or that. Your arm between your between your between your shoulder and your elbow, but I mean, they spoke about your arm not being down beside your side. I mean, this is not Irish dancing. I mean, we have we hurleys in our hands. How do we hold a hurley, which is which is thirty six inches long? If your arm is not bent, Um, my technique and shouldering was completely right. It's just I didn't hit his shoulder. And mm. that's, and that's absolutely the way, the way it worked out. I mean, my elbow doesn't connect with him at all. I, I felt, I felt the connection when, when, when I did run past him.
3: Right. Um, cause you know the angle, uh, you know the fourth angle, the one from behind? That there's, there were different angles of it. There's one from behind, I yeah, guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and that, actually, that's the one where, where it, uh, it, uh, of it
6: afterwards, but I mean, that's the, is, the one where it looks I mean, like the elbow
3: catches him actually. Yeah.
6: Yeah. But I mean, to go through, to go through four or five angles and say, Oh, this is the one here that shows, um, that there was a connection of this part. I mean, what about the other four angles? I, I don't, I don't, I, I didn't, I didn't understand that. I mean, if you look at it again, mm. I lean in, I actually lean down in with my, with my shoulder and, uh, his head is down there because he had taken a, a sidestep. Yeah. Say. He checks um, back. Yeah. But I mean, this is, you're talking about split second, uh, split second stuff here and, I mean, you know, you're, you're really, you're really splitting hairs. Um, mm. to, to go back to what Shane Dowland said, um, Carl Barrett's challenge on me was not a red card. Um, you know, I was in possession of the ball. He went, he went to flick the ball away. He missed it. Um, didn't hit the ball. Hit, hit me, hit me in the, in, in the face. And it's a, it's a free. Sometimes it's a yellow card. Sometimes mm. it isn't. I think you kind of depend on, on, um, on, on the situation. But, um, so you weren't no, si- it, it, you
3: weren't sitting there after the Barrett one saying here ref that's at least a yellow if not a not a borderline red because that you know it's easy to put two and two together here and say that that um, was your feeling after that as you were jogging off with blood.
6: No, no, I, uh, I was completely calm after that. No. I was just uh, my only annoyance with that was he was trying to get me off the field as quickly as possible and I just wanted to tie me late. It was as simple as that. I really right. wasn't because my foot had come out. No, I mean it, for me to nobody would be talking about the Carl Barrett no tackle no, on it's me true. if if they were if if I didn't get sent off later on yeah. so I, I i wouldn't it would be completely dishonest of me to say that that was a sending off but his tackle was exactly the same as mine and nobody would be talking about my incident if i was if i wasn't sent off either so it's it's one of those things that if a yellow card is given out the game is played nobody even revisits it once the red card goes out, we keep talking about the decision, and mm. and it gets and it gets and it gets raised. But for for me, it's 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 done. It's it's done. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah, yeah. It retrospectively, absolutely, um, the referee's job is to apply the rules retrospectively. Of course, it is. Um, and I mean, we were beaten by we were beaten by fourteen points. Uh, yeah. I, I think we were beaten by fourteen points. Um, it's just a pity that. Um, that particular incident had maybe such a such a bearing on the game, um, and that's it, uh, I say that may mean for myself. Um, obviously, I would always consider myself growing up uh, playing a completely honest, uh, completely honest player. Um, you know, both when I tackle and when I receive tackles, and when I play. Um, and these things just happen but I mean, you yeah, yeah. know I just have to get on with it um, and I and I can understand with the way with the way not with the way hurling is on with the way analysis has gone now that we've so many camera angles and we have so many opinions and we have so many I suppose so many uh we we don't have just have educated opinions we we have uneducated opinions as well with social media and all the rest of it mm-hmm. um, and you know such and such a fella who said, Oh, it happened right near me and uh, another fella who said, Oh, I saw it here and I saw it this way. It's all about the interpretation of what happens at the time. Um I mean the very fact that um it the incident has caused so much controversy just shows that it's um I mean you have to run over it and over it to say, Oh, maybe it was a a record So look that's 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 the way it goes. Um We get up and we get on with it. We, we would never, ever use it as an excuse or look for it as an excuse. I think if you look at, um, the season as a whole, uh, Tipperary, serving all our end champions, um, you know, right from the very first game, which they beat, um, which they beat Cork. I think they've had a fantastic year. Yeah. I think to be honest with you, for myself, um, and I I suppose, yeah, yeah, you spoke to me earlier on about, about, um, why I even decided to pick up the phone. Mm. You know, I just—I—I uh, I don't want the All Ireland final to be to be ruined by controversy over a particular incident and all the rest of it. So, I mean, I'll never speak about it again. We'll just get up and we'll get on with it, and we we'll wish Tipperary well. Um, and the next week, week and a half, and the next couple of months, mm. um, when it comes into All Star territory and all the rest of it, should be about Tipperary and about—I mean, they're—they're they're, uh, fantastic while the All-Ireland Final maybe didn't end the way they, or didn't turn out the way everyone would have wanted I think the year itself was a fantastic yeah, and yeah. season and I think Tipperary were deserving champions and I wouldn't like an incident like that or a decision like that to take away from from uh, from their victory because I mean you know they trained for 9 or 10 months in order to win an All-Ireland Final mm. and then achieve their goal and it's just a fantastic place to be for Tipperary and we uh, we wish them well and uh, I suppose can't wait for next year on our own well, that, that's more than fair
3: enough. And then, so uh, accepting that it's not something you want to t- be talking about for the rest of your days, and even for the rest of this phone call, the very last point I'll put to you in yeah. about it. Um, it's funny, like it is mad because I, I probably wouldn't have even changed my views even after listening to you because I just, I just see the elbow connect with yeah. the chin, and I don't know, it, it must be something deceptive, but it just, I don't know, it just, I can definitely see how it looked like. He's checked inside you, and then almost instinctively, I think an elbow pops up. But you're you're kind of saying it was more of a trying to dip the shoulder into him, and he was too quick for you, and you didn't feel it was like actually the point of your elbow that clocks him.
6: Oh no! I mean, uh, for me, any talk of an elbow was crazy. First, I heard of it was this morning, I think, right. and I thought any any talk I, I could believe that were mentioning mentioning an elbow. I went in to shoulder. He he slipped me. I could actually feel. I could I could I could feel the contact. Um, I could feel the contact coming, coming off, coming off um, as as he was swinging around. Uh, I didn't expect him to be to be down. But when I when I saw him down, then I was like, okay, it's a free right, turn around, okay. get up, uh, turn around, and and uh, it, get up the field and, and, and get ready to defend it. And then, you know, look, it's 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 just a, it's just the way it is. Mm. I mean, <laughs> the very fact that you have. Um, and I, and I know you have your view on it. I have my view on it. Yes. Someone else has their view on it. Tipperary players have their different views on it as well. Some of which will be in my favour. Others of which which be in another favour. The very fact that it's controversial is, I suppose, it's um, yeah. it's, it's it's unfortunate, um, um, and, and that's the way it goes. Um, that's the way it goes. But I mean, you know, I just have to get up and get on with yeah, it. Exactly. And, 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 yeah, exactly. And and play the game. I suppose if you were to ask me. I thought the best way to describe it would be if I had it back again and I was going out to tackle him over the line, would I do the exact same thing and then do the exact same thing? That's... that's. Right. I mean, if he stays there, you hit him with a good shoulder and, and um, you move him over the line. Mm. Uh, the very same thing happened in the Limerick game with Sean, Sean Finn. Um, where I shouldered him out, out over the line and, and he goes. Uh, that, that's what happens with contact. And in that Bill Cooper... Um, incident earlier on, yeah. I mean connection there was made with my head completely accidentally so um, and and it, that just happened and I mean, people speak about a red card there, it the wasn't a red card, I mean it, there's it, the best way to describe it would be if you look at um, if you look at in rugby and we, we probably we, we don't have this in in, in, uh, in, in Hurling and maybe mm. maybe it might come in down the line but in rugby, a fella passes off the ball and he's tackled late. The player is committed to the, if the player is committed to the challenge, yes, and he's tackled late. Yeah. it's just it's just it's just play on or it, or it's whatever. Maybe sometimes it's but but it's certainly not. Um, it, there's an understanding there, and I suppose you're completely dependent on the referee's interpretation of 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 what happens. Um, mm. And it, it was it was as obvious as day that I went into. An honest challenge to shoulder him over the line, mm. and he and and he cut back in. He cut back in, and was there contact? There absolutely was contact. I'm not going to deny that whatsoever and say that um, and say that there wasn't. Um, but um, yeah, no. But it was it was completely honest, uh, completely yeah. honest uh, challenge. I mean, raising your elbow or connecting with your elbow in a match is, is crazy stuff. Um, I mean, and and I mean, I've been playing a long time, and i i I'm very I'm very calm player on the pitch. While while I do obviously like to get stuck in, I'm, I'm very calm when I do play, yeah. um, and 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 can often make the right decisions. But um, yeah. no, I mean there's not a, I mean attacking somebody with your elbows, it, that's a dirty challenge, and I mean I have that that's that's not in that's not in okay. my uh, that's not in my
3: game. Yeah, well, listen, it's even great to hear from you know, hear that from you, or to get your perspective on that because it, what definitely the last two days the narrative had been. Carl barrett challenging you you're fuming you see the chance to get him he checks back in elbow comes up that's that's the thinking um so it's yeah, good to yeah. get inside your head um i guess you're in a bit of a daze then are you like halftime uh, what like you're kind of what do you do when you've been sent off do you sit in and listen to the half time team talk do you take a few minutes yourself your head was probably spinning yeah couldn't
6: believe it um uh, I, I I couldn't believe it to be honest with you. It happened very close to half time obviously. So we were trying to um, get ourselves. But um, look, I just said, said to the lads, it's not not about me. It's about the it's about the 14 players who are playing. Um, you know, it's it's very much um, it's very much about the lads who are out there. Uh, are we capable of beating Tipperary with 14 men? Yes, we are. Are they capable of beating us with or beating any top class team with 14 men? Themselves, yes, they are, and that's what they proved it against Wexford. Um, but obviously, when they got the when they got the second uh, goal just after half time, I think it um, it kind of knocked the stuffing out of us, and mm-hmm. um, we found it hard to get back. Um, conditions as well. I mean, with fourteen men in, in in poor conditions, it's very difficult to 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 roll back uh, or, or to roll back in a lead because I think with fourteen men, you're very much dependent on shooting from. Distance as well, you know, trying to avoid the, yeah. the spare man. So, I mean, it wasn't the kind of day where we were going to have um, wing backs and maybe midfielders taking scores 80-90 yards because the conditions didn't work really conducive to that. So, um, I think Tipperary. I mean, Tipperary came out in the second half and were um, were fantastic. I think their their movement and obviously their play was was, um, was 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 brilliant in uh, how they used the ball and just there and saw, saw an opportunity to win in All-Ireland and, 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 and took it and uh, congratulations to them I suppose is, mm. is what we can say obviously we're disappointed but um, we're very much um, gracious in, in, in the season in the sense that um, the, the All-Ireland final is there to be won whether it be with 12 men or 11 men or mm. 14 or 15 it's there to be won and um, it's not it's not easy to win any All-Ireland and um I mean, you know, I suppose we congratulate them on that.
3: Were you conscious of the camera picking you out at times across the second half?
6: No, I, 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 I didn't see if somebody mentioned that to me afterwards, but I don't, I, I don't really, I don't really recall it. Right, honest, it,
3: it was hard to tell from your demeanour if you were engrossed in the game and watching the game, or if it was like a thousand-yard stare and you were kind of disengaged from the whole thing, and, and probably feeling a mixture of all the emotions that you can imagine you were feeling. I don't know what you. What you remember from that game? Like, were you able to concentrate on it, or was your head just racing?
6: Um, I mean, second half, absolutely. We were. Um, no, I, I came out in the second half, and I was absolutely concentrating on the game. Um, I, you don't have time to feel sorry for yourself, Joe. To be honest with you, right. because it's just, it's just, it doesn't it doesn't work out like that. There's plenty of time to feel sorry for yourself later on. So, for me, I was just. You know, there's nothing I can do. Obviously, the other subs on the bench are, are, are looking to see. Well, what could I do if I come on? Obviously, that wasn't an option for me. Um, once the second goal went in, and once there was a lead of eight nine points, I suppose it came There was an air of inevitability about it in the sense that we probably weren't going to win it. Um, I I don't know if you were at the game or, or not. No, I was watching but, um, on the TV. Yeah. Yeah, I, and it might not have been that easy to pick up on the TV but the atmosphere in the, in the stadium had probably gone with maybe yeah. 25 minutes ago so I think it was an element of um, for, for, for me waiting for the final whistle and I suppose um, maybe just hoping that maybe TJ or Colin or somebody could catch a ball and maybe, mm. maybe get a score but I, I think there was an element of um, an element of hope after that which mm. was obviously not great
3: your own um, body at the moment like your your back injury seems to be a, an ongoing battle have you are you able to train as much as you want are you able to get as fit as you want are you managing this thing that's kind of giving you trouble all the, all the time or, or where are you with that now
6: yeah look it's not um, for me it's not an ideal situation um, reality um, you know I was patched up to, 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 to play the all Ireland final and um, I, I tore I tore my medial ligament on my left knee against Limerick. Um, right. I was in with the surgeon the following week, so I, I haven't trained since the Limerick game. Uh, I did some straight line running, um, and it was obviously very very heavily strapped, but um, absolutely able to contribute as best I as best I uh, uh, could. Um, look, for, I, I don't know, Joe. It's, it's a difficult it's a difficult question for me to answer. Um. um I started my, I started my warm up, uh, two hours and 15 minutes before the match started. So, I mean, um, and that was just to be able to actually get on the pitch between, between getting work done on my back, uh, getting work done on, 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 on my knee, other injuries that I may be carrying. But, you know, it's, 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 it's not easy. Obviously, I'm, uh, I haven't been able to train as much as I would have liked. Um, I mean, and it's, it's and, unfortunate, but I'm sorry to interrupt, you what like
3: what 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 might be we be talking about say for an average month across the year like in you, is is one pitch session a week about the height of it or if even that some of the time or where are you? Um,
6: it, it depends really. I the last between Leinster final. Um, sorry, just just before Leinster final time, maybe around the first Wexford game up until up until the Cork game uh, I would have taken part in every training session which was brilliant to be able to do but um, you know I could wake up on the morning of a game and mightn't have slept well and might wake up and might not necessarily be able to be able to move uh, 100% freely Um, it it, it takes it takes it takes a lot of hard work but um, you know it's worth it to even get a minute on on the field. Mm-hmm. Um, now that the now that the year is over and um, now, now that it's finished, obviously, I have to sit down and think about um, whether you can do it again or whether you can keep going. But um, those, you know, at, at the time you just you, you just focus and do what you can. Mm. I, I would start with maybe a lot of running. Weight sessions are quite are quite difficult, so they're they're tailored. Um, obviously, I live I live in Dublin, so I'm. Uh, I have I've a long commute. Um, all of my gym sessions are obviously, need, need to be supervised as well in terms of technique. Um, you know, I had multiple multiple visits to, um, multiple visits to um, pain specialists in terms of, in terms of uh, getting work done on the back and keep myself in, in, in tune just because I want to play. Yeah. And it's, and it's as simple as that. And, um, yeah, so it, it to, to answer your question, it completely depends on the day. If I go in on a Tuesday night and I'm in yeah. the train, I'll, I'll, I'll do absolutely everything that everyone else is doing. And I'm very conscious of that, that I don't like to do separate training. I, I, I just don't like it. I don't think it's good for... I don't think it's good for the spirit of the team. I don't yeah. think it's good for um, my own head. I like to be able to fit in with the group, do what everyone else is doing. But there's there's times when, I suppose, I'm held back and, and, and told to do something, something different. Um, I, the only side, which I have uh, maybe, which I do struggle with now is I, I can only train when I have access to a physio, so if I want to do some stuff on my own uh, of which I would have done a huge amount over the last couple of years, um, whether that be going to a pitch to practice striking, freeze, running, whatever I can't do that anymore because right. uh, i just physically physically not able to do it without access to a physio beforehand so that's that's probably the only part where I do where, where I haven't done as much as, as I would have liked, but um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully it comes
3: good. Right, geez, that's that. There's a cruelty about that—the randomness of turning up some days and it not working, and then like I'm sure you you love doing the extras, going and having a poke about sharpening the skills. Being sharp is kind of what we're talking about. Like, might it robbed you a touch of if, of anything? It's that sharpness that you would have had yeah, at your absolute well, well, yeah.
6: peak. Yeah, Well, well sharp, sharpness would? Yeah, sharpness will come absolutely. Yeah, your 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 touch, your your strike, even maybe the speed at which you you, you do things. Um, I think maybe even your your overall um, your overall your overall fitness. I mean, it's yeah, absolutely no no secret that I wouldn't have been able to. I wouldn't have played seventy minutes on Sunday, regardless of how well I was playing or how well the, the game was going. Mm. Um, so I, I suppose that that's obviously a struggle. But for me, to be honest with you, to play for Kenny for a minute or thirty seconds is an absolute privilege, and um, you know if that's what I need to do to, to do it, I'll do it.
3: And so, because uh, I was going to ask, and it sounds like we will see you back next year. Like you'll do it again next year.
6: Um, yeah, I sit down, and I'll think about it. Um, look, look for me. Um, if we if we'd won on Sunday, it would have been a nice way to to maybe sign off. Yeah, off like that. So. For me, obviously, um, I'll, I'll do whatever I can to play maybe another year and see how it goes from there. Because, hmm. uh, like, I don't think anybody,
3: like, geez, you've been such a brilliant player, my God! Um, for that to be your last minute in a Kilkenny jersey, just wouldn't sit right with anyone, and I'd say you least of all.
6: Uh, absolutely, I mean, nobody wants to, nobody wants to finish their career like that, and. Uh, I mean, for me, I, I, I absolutely. I walked out on uh, in Crow Park the last day in the parade, and 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 absolutely said to myself, "Look, um, play your best, because you mightn't, you might necessarily, you might necessarily be ever be here again." Mm. Uh, even though, even though I work in Crow Park, believe it or not, so I'm there every day, which which is which is <laughs> a, a different part to it. But in terms of being on the pitch, um, uh, doing what you love, I, I just take every game as if it's as if it's my last now. But. No, i don't want to finish like that um and you know maybe it's a good thing maybe that decision that i was probably would have had to make over the winter has probably been made already for me so um um yeah so i, I think to be honest which i owe it to myself to um do whatever i can to, to play again Here. Yeah?
3: okay good well i think we all i'd speak for everyone listening i think when i say i hope we see you back um maybe that's the note to finish it on um Thanks so much for coming on for talking about it. Very easy not to do that. Um, I do hope we see you back. And uh, like you said at the outset, I mean, ultimately, it's controversy for a few days. But Tipperary won; they did very well. That's you know, that they'll be re- the year will go down as Tipperary all out and champions, not Richie Hogan being sent off.
6: Yeah, and I, I mean, look, I, I don't know. I, I, I hope it did come across in the over the last uh, ten fifteen minutes or whatever. But um, I, I couldn't, I couldn't say it enough how difficult a thing it's, a, it's the most difficult thing in the world certainly in sport to win an honour and final where you've achieved that and I think all the plaudits and credit should absolutely go to them um, I mean, they're absolutely deserving winners they've gone through the, the mill themselves in terms of what they've had to go through to, to reach the top and um, I understand what it takes Um very a lovely lad as well and i absolutely wish them the very best and congratulations to them and they should absolutely be celebrated to, to the maximum over the, over the next couple of months for for what they've achieved.
2: It's Richie Hogan there speaking with Joe Malloy in the aftermath of his red card in the All uh, Ireland final in 2019. Like fair play to Richie Hogan for coming out and just doing it. And like i think the more of that that happens the better. He comes across really well. Like I mean, he always comes across really well, but, but he
1: yeah. comes out and owns the narrative. Like these things can take on a life of their own if you if the key person comes out and gives his side of the story, that's kind of the full stop. Like in some ways, people would have said he's keeping it in the headlines by talking, but in actual fact, he was getting the headline. He wrote his own headline, and then by Wednesday afternoon, it was kind of done. Yeah, so yeah. He dealt with a,
2: with a plum, I think. Yeah, no, totally. And there's definitely a, a PR lesson in that for anybody who's ever involved in any of this kind of stuff. So um, that's it. Anything else you want to say? No, like all I can say is
1: those are three items from from so many brilliant pieces that have been done since I've been here and I've been involved with some of them but like a brilliant team here too many to name obviously um, but you guys are at the forefront of it and it's been a pleasure uh, working on Off The Ball hopefully still be involved in some capacity down the years but it's like not to be too twee but it was definitely a dream coming true because I was listening thinking I felt part of it as a listener and then to be physically part of it um as someone on the show was um was brilliant so uh, I'll never forget this period in my working life or in my life in general so uh,
2: thanks again for, for all the opportunities well look I think um, as Joe said earlier on the quality of the ideas has shone through and I think anybody who's listened to the last hour will be like holy moly that is a, a body of work that you can be totally proud of and, and um, will always be able to stand over so uh, on behalf of everybody at uh, Team OTB thanks a million for uh, putting together a brilliant so far OTB career and the uh, the good folks at the hard shoulder or whatever it is whatever it's called <laughs> The right, hook. Four um, to 7, four to seven. <laughs> <laughs> Just remember to mention us every day. It'll all be uh, symbolic. They're getting, they're, they're getting a superstar. So congratulations on a great OTB career, and um, thanks very much. Thanks, chair.